Before mighty Darkseid came to the throne, he searched the universe for the ultimate weapon, the anti-life equation, the key to controlling all life and all will throughout the multiverse. He found it hidden on a primitive planet, but before... The story he... of the Defiance is well known. I have found the primitive planet, the world that fought back. It is Earth. The anti-life equation is carved into the surface of this very world. Are you certain? I have seen it. I have looked with my own eyes. Welcome to the third part of the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast. Look at the Batman portion of the DC Universe. How many can die in your arms before you grow numb to death? Listen in as Garrett. Oh, I'm really, really missing Superman right now. Matt. Is it just me, or is it getting crazier out there? And Adam. I'm your best friend. Continue their look at all cinematic incarnations starring the Cape Crusader. They say, if you want to tell a story right, you gotta start at the beginning. Included on this leg of the retrospective are reviews of Joker. My life is nothing but a comedy. Birds of Prey and the fantabulous emancipation of one Harley Quinn. It took losing something I truly loved for me to see that the target on my back was bigger than I thought. Zack Snyder's Justice League. My lord, I am but your humble servant. The Suicide Squad. <laughs> you laughing at me for, man? Why the fuck are you in your underwear? Tighty whiteies? Really? And Matt Reeves' latest cinematic incarnation, The Batman. He's the only one we didn't get. Keep coming back in the coming months, as the boys will continue their look at each film in the cinematic DC universe, one film at a time. We could watch the whole thing together. Watch what? Everything! All coming up, courtesy of Percolated Media. The Batman, released March 4th, 2022, budget was $200 million, box office $770.8 million, and this is directed by Matt Reeves. All right, boys, it's time. Seven months later, we're here. (laughs) We are finally reviewing The Batman, the conclusion of our very first complete retrospective as a site. And uh, let, me, let me say something before we get going with this show. You know, I, I, guys, I think it's safe to say that this movie was really what get, got us to springboard this site into existence. The reason why I say that is because when this advertising was going full force, the three of us had a thread going like we always do. And we were talking about the trailers and we we're like, man, that looks really interesting. We can't wait to maybe get a retrospective going on that. And by the end of the year, it became clear that, yeah, we're not going to be renewed. So yeah, I think this movie... The fact that we were not able to talk about it was really what got this going. To a point, because I would have pushed for this, even just as a one-off review, because we were still trying to figure out what the formatting of the new site was going to be. And with some unknown still about COVID and theater releases and all that, if we needed to have some content in a pinch, I, I would have leaned towards this. But this was definitely the catalyst for doing a Batman retrospective because we always like to do some kind of tie-in or a build-up to a release in anticipation. 
So either way, we would have done Batman in some capacity, but this thankfully gave us an alley to walk down, and thankfully we did not walk down and get shot like some people in Gotham City. I mean, it was, it was a thought of, hey, maybe we can kick it off with just this. Get us started with a new, you know, the new movie, the you know, the blockbuster, really, that was gearing up for 2022. And then it was, well, we're going to do a bunch of them. And let's use this to, to cap off the Batman retro, Nolanverse excluded. But really just looking forward to going, okay, gives us some momentum, gives us something to strive for, even, or to work for. Be like, okay, this is on the horizon. Let's do this other work to get there. And it, it was been exciting to go along and get to it, and this is another one where it's kind of amazing that we saw it, we all had a lot of anticipation, we all had a lot of thoughts, and we kept it to ourselves to not spoil it, even gearing up months later for us to finally get to this point. Yep, and let me let me get to how I've been feeling in this retrospective. You know, I, I feel like this retrospective has turned me into the 6 on 10 guy, not the 4 on 10 guy. A 6 on 10 has been my average score for this entire retrospective. You guys have had to put up with me rating Catwoman a 9, and I've had to put up with assertion that Oprah Winfrey would have made a good Amanda Waller. So <laughs> it, it's, it's been a really weird retrospective to kick things off at, at Percolated Media, I have to say. When this movie was coming out, the trailers were out, the announcement was made, and we'll talk about all that, but I was excited for a Batman film for the first time in years. Probably since The Dark Knight, honestly, was the last time I was this excited for a Batman film. In fact, I know it was The Dark Knight when I saw that first Heath Ledger trailer. So my anticipation was sky high. I thought the casting choice of Robert Pattinson was a good one. I was looking forward to seeing what Matt Reeves could do with this, even though I hadn't seen any of his Apes films, which we'll get to. But like I mentioned last week, I really enjoyed his remake of Let Me In, and he did some really good things with Cloverfield. So my anticipation level was really, really high for this, and I had some pretty high expectations expectations going in. Matt, what about you, sir? What were your expectations? So my thoughts on this movie pivoted constantly between what this originally started out as versus what it became versus the marketing. I think every stage of this movie's production, which we'll get into very shortly, jerked me at a different angle. I And that made it difficult for me to get overly excited. But at the same time, I was not going to talk smack excessively about anything I was seeing because Batman has been across the decades. It's been done in so many different ways. And it's a franchise that has on multiple circumstances, at least in our opinion for some of them, but broadly going against expectations where people thought it was going to be one thing or even said it was going to be terrible, whether that was a actor being cast or a different direction for the characters on the whole, it's been very adaptable. But because of that, and just how many Batman movies we've gotten, I was not 100% excited once this definitely molded into the movie that was released. For me, I have not been this excited for a Batman movie since The Dark Knight Rises. Everything about this when it first started had me jazzed. Had me a little worried. You know, I was very, very much looking forward to Ben Affleck turn in suit and behind the camera. I think he's fantastic as a director and what he had planned and rumored wise was something I really, really wanted to see. So initially I was disappointed that he wasn't going to be doing it, but I'm always happy for another Batman film. I think the only one that I was not actually very excited for was The Dark Knight. Turned out to be ridiculously wrong on that. Is that is fantastic. Third best in that trilogy. Jesus. Uh, <laughs> Kidding, maybe. But when the news came out with Pattinson 
and my feed, my phone blew up. Oh, my God, are you upset? Are you upset? Are you upset? No. I know he's not just Edward from Twilight. He is an accomplished actor that could do some damn good things. And I thought it was an inspired choice that they wanted to go with a young Batman. The only thing that I knew Matt Reeves from was Cloverfield. I still have not seen the last two Apes films. I think I saw the movie he did with David Schwimmer back in like the late 90s also. Jesus. David Schwimmer. If David Schwimmer was in a movie, I saw it. So I think <laughs> I saw that. Didn't exactly tie into this one. Schwimmer and Paul Trevor not exactly the back end. No Schwimmer retrospectives on the horizon. I got news for you. <laughs> Damn. <laughs> but I was very much excited. And when we started getting the looks, we started getting the trailers, we started getting the feel of what it was going to be. And then when we started getting some of the other casting, Zoe Kravitz, when the first saw her, I was like, ooh, great-looking Catwoman. Kind of looked like we had started to get in comics at that time. And then when we got our Penguin, and we got what we thought was our first look at the Penguin, because we thought we were getting an Emperor Penguin-type look, and then that kind of, I don't know if it was a purposeful or accidental swerve, and then the trailer came out, and everybody's like, where the hell did Colin Farrell go? I was kind of jazzed. I was excited, even to the point that I was buying Little Caesars, Batman, Bat Calzone. Just to get the posters that I would get by getting it. So, not too difficult to say I was all in for this. If you ate that calzone, the fire did rise. <laughs> <laughs> Let's get into the making of this. So, last I'd heard, well, right after Justice League, we were hearing that Ben Affleck was going to be doing his own, as Adam mentioned, his own Batman movie in Batsuit, and he was going to be directing it. And. Lo and behold, I think he felt just about as beat down from Justice League and all the chaos that went on that we talked about. Like, I was felt beat down after our last podcast together. Not to mention, he had a lot of personal stuff going on. So he decided, you know what, I I don't feel it anymore. I'm not going to be the Batman anymore. Well, before Affleck left officially, if you remember, his departure went in stages to where he announced at one point he was just stepping down as director but was still going to be playing Batman. I was disappointed. I do think Affleck is a great technical director, but I think when he casts himself in his movies, he's usually the weakest actor. Maybe it was a blessing in disguise, but then we heard he was stepping away completely, and apparently it was a combination of the script not being where he wanted it to be, personal life, he was going through some things on multiple fronts, and I'm sure he was beaten down from the moment his name was thrown in that, in the ring, as Batman. So he seemed like despite being the best thing, arguably, or in some cases, inarguably, of the DCEU, it was not a shock when I heard that he was stepping away completely. But then, my question was, what do you do now? Do you just recap, get a new actor to play Bruce Wayne slash Batman in this continuity? But that was not meant to be. So once Affleck stepped down as director, then WB said, okay, who do we get? And everyone from Denny Villeneuve to George Miller to Ridley Scott were considered to replace Affleck as director. Matt Reeves somehow wound up on the shortlist. Self-admitted, longtime Batman fan. He said, okay, what do you have? They sent him the script. He liked it, but he wanted to do something different. And apparently, there was a clause in his contract that said, I will do it if I get full creative control. And the the chair of WB Pictures, things named Toby Emmerich, he really wanted to get what he said an auteur to make a Batman film. So he said, okay. And then Matt Reeves was hired shortly after. So while I'm bummed that, that Ben Affleck was gone, the interesting thing shortly after the, the next development was them saying, we're just going to reboot 
and do something entirely new. Not just a new Batman, but we're not going to be beholden to the Snyderverse. We're going to go off and do our own thing. So it was a snowball. But look, with what had been happening with that franchise, I think Matt Reeves made a very smart, very calculated decision once Ben Affleck was gone completely. And it's interesting, you know, he's another one. We mentioned it in the last film. Second film in a row, pretty much full creative control. He didn't hear any notes or anything going back and forth. Reeves really had carte blanche to do what he wanted here. And they throw Snyder off his projects. This is funny to think about. So Matt Reeves is connected. How did Pattinson get cast? Was this a Reeves choice? So initially, there were talks, I guess, before this changed into a reboot of sorts for actors to replace him. But all of them were much younger than Ben Affleck. Army Hammer. Oh, Nicholas, Jesus. Nick, yeah, uh, Nicholas Holt, who has just been tortured I by know. getting close to a, a multitude of roles. And he almost had this, too. They almost chose him. I guess him and Pattinson were, were 1A and 1B. Mm-hmm. But Pattinson, apparently, Matt Reeves had seen Good Time, and that is what sold him to write this movie with, with Pattinson in mind. But the question was, all right, can we get him to do it? Because Pattinson's been very open about his Twilight experience, that he put it behind him. He was not yet doing another big franchise. Like, Marvel had not reached out and thrown the bag at him to, to do something. And apparently, Nicholas Holt, while he had ties to X-Men, that was not a franchise that was going anywhere. In fact, it was about to implode in multiple mm-hmm. senses. They said, look, he's buried under all the, the Beast prosthetics, so if we cast him, your general audience might even not know who it is. But Pattinson said that, yeah, I'll do it, because he's a Batman fan, and he, he got sold a great pitch. And to the surprise of no one, this decision was met with a lot of backlash. Stop me if you've heard this before, everybody. <laughs> of course, because he, all he was was the twinkly vampire. And let me just say, I endorse this because, guys, we mentioned it when we covered Justice League. Yes, Ben Affleck was totally into it when he was doing Batman v Superman. But once he got to Justice League, we joked about the fact that he wasn't exactly throwing tires around anymore or doing any of that. He sleepwalked through that Justice League movie, I feel. And I feel like, again, I think that's a really the result of how tumultuous that set was. I just don't think his heart was in it. So I think it was a good idea to move away from this. And here we are. Matt Reeves comes. He sees good time. He likes Robert Pattinson. He casts him. Boom. Here comes the internet backlash. And boy, did it come. They had another petition, right, to get him off this thing. Yeah, it was a a change.org petition. (laughs) Unbelievable. And Adam, you said you were endorsing this. Are you a David Cronenberg fan? Like, how did you know Pattinson away from the Twilight series? Of anything, that would probably be the biggest one, would be his work with Cronenberg. Also, what I'd seen of The Lighthouse at that point. Oh, yeah. That he was willing to take chances and really be an auteur, really just a student of the craft. It made me excited. The only part I didn't care for was him really seemingly, with the press and things like that, not caring about the character that much or feeling like he needed to get in shape. I mean, there was a lot of talk of, oh, he doesn't want to do this, he doesn't want to do that. So there was press out there that he wanted to play Batman, but didn't want to be Batman. You know, it was it was kind of weird that way. But I thought that he would definitely give that nuanced, really haunted performance, is what I thought he was absolutely capable of, which is not one that we've gotten, for the most part, in, uh, throughout all, any of these movies, really. Yeah, and when I saw this, I bought tickets probably about a month and a half in advance. It was initially going to be 
me and my girlfriend going, and it turned out that she ended up having surgery that week, and so she couldn't go. And so I went with a good friend of mine who used to geek out a lot and see all of these together. And since I've moved back, this was the time we were like, okay, let's go ahead and head out and see the Batman. So he took that ticket, and we went and saw it. We had the big IMAX screen, which... I didn't feel like this was even shot for IMAX, honestly. I didn't think, I don't think I saw one IMAX shot in this entire film. It was an experience. We even had Batman cosplayers too. Matt, you see this opening day? It would have been as early as an opportunity as I would have had. I think we went to, my friend Alex and I went to a Thursday night first showing at a brand new movie theater. Like they had just renovated a theater not too far from where I lived. Like they did the leather reclining seats, you know, 4X whatever the fuck it's called. 4DX, I think, is what, what it's called. So pristine conditions as possible. But, but I have to be honest, there was something about this movie that did not excite me, that we have not talked about yet. And I mentioned this to Adam when the movie was going through the production phase. I said to him, I said, God damn it. And I think that's the exact words I used <laughs> to, to start. But they announced who the villains were going to be. <laughs> And it were all villains we have seen in previous movies. Some multiple times in the case of Catwoman. I thought this was the perfect opportunity to start from scratch and much like they did with Black Mask, take some other villains that we have not seen before and bring them to life. When I heard it was going to be Riddler, Catwoman, and Penguin, three of the four villains that were in the 60s movie to begin with were all in a Burton slash Schumacher production. In the case of Catwoman, we got both Anne Hathaway and Oliveri. I was not enthusiastic about seeing those villains again, even with the actors that they chose. Nothing really could have excited me about, in my opinion, going back to basic. Yeah, I remember that discussion. I felt the same way. I was glad who they had portraying them, but I just remember going, man, are we really going to go back to the bat, the cat, and the penguin again? Riddler again? I mean, it was... At least we, we knew we were getting Falcone, you know, even though we've seen Falcone more than once also, but it was, you know, obviously going to be a little different. But yeah, that was the one part that I found disappointing was you had a chance to go radical, not even radical, just of the best rogues gallery in all of comics, and you have the exact same ones we've seen before, including in the same film before, was perplexing to me. Just, I really wish they'd gone a different way. When this was leading up to it, I was like, man, do we need another Riddler? Do we need another Penguin? Do we need another, you know, where's Hugo Strange? Where's Clayface? Where's Lady Shiva? Where, you know, any of the great options that I was Clayface. Absolutely. You, you want a man that can change in it and be anybody and... <laughs> Yeah, Carlo and, oh, absolutely. You know, where's, give us a Harvey Dent that we can actually get a true Two-Face, where we get a film of him as Harvey before he flips. So, I was excited, but yeah, I did feel that the villains were just pulling the exact same names out of a hat. You laugh at Clayface Garrett, but the funny thing is that when Andy Serkis' name was brought up, Uh everybody assumed he was playing Clayface, because that character would probably have to be motion capture. And then when we heard he was playing Alfred, it was quite the misdirect, because on the one hand, it sounds like an inspired choice, but it's also something you would not immediately think of. Yeah. So, Adam, opening day? This was one where I got to go, and I did the uh, the Tuesday Dolby screening. 
So I got to see it a couple days early, Dolby Atmos, powered recliner, giant screen, amazing sound system. And then I went back, I think on Friday, with Laura and saw it with the biggest crowd that we could see so we could get the crowd reaction as well. Okay. And since that time, all of us came back and we said, yep, we saw it. And we have not divulged our thoughts. Boys, what do you say we just dive in and we finally get this podcast going, huh? It's a dark and rainy night. <sighs> Let's get a podcast. Hmm. All important movies start with a black screen. We actually start <laughs> off with the Warner Brothers logo, with Ava Maria playing, and indications that we are beginning this film on Halloween. And this is based on the long Halloween, correct? At least partly. In parts. Yeah. I'm actually, that was one of the things that they were, oh, it's taken from this, it's taken from, they take a couple scenes, but that 12 issue maxi series, the overarching story of it all is not the story of this movie. But there's a couple elements, especially with Falcone and Thomas Wayne and a few other little things that are in that comic. And, and definitely the feel, that really pulpy noir feel is the feel of that comic. We see Darth Vader watching the streets and windows. <laughs> we got this this breathing that, uh, to me, it kind of felt like Reeves was paying tribute to John Carpenter with this a little bit. This is kind of the way we we're introduced to Michael Myers as well in that first Halloween film. So let's talk about this Riddler. This is not your dad or uncle's Riddler. <laughs> this isn't Frank Gorshin. This isn't Jim Carrey. We discussed those. Go back and listen to them if you want to hear our thoughts on those Riddlers. But let, let's talk about... Paul Dano. Now, this Riddler, he will send a few riddles, but he is a Zodiac-style serial killer. Paul Dano, I thought was an interesting choice to play him. I think he does a good job. He's definitely undeniably creepy. How do we like Paul Dano's Riddler, people? If there's a Riddler in there somewhere, it's buried somewhere. Yeah. <laughs> I think Paul Dano is damn good in what it is. I think it's a very scary, very obviously ripped from Zodiac type of mashup of, of serial killer. I don't get serial killer and Riddler generally in the same. Yeah, it's weird. I don't get a Riddler feel out of this guy. I don't know that's just because it's modernized up. It's, you know, taken for today's audience. But it, it's, a, it's a weird choice to make him the way that it is. Do you agree with it or not agree with it? Yes. You do. Okay. <laughs> uh, no, I'm saying sometimes I'll go with it. And sometimes I just don't think it's the right direction for the character or the right character to pick for this necessarily. So let me start with his wardrobe, because that was one of the things I saw in the advertising that I did not like. It reminded me a lot of the Green Goblin in the first Raimi Spider-Man movie, where you have a you have a great actor who, who's very skilled at his, at his face, and you hide him behind a mask where he cannot express anything beyond his eyes. Which is a challenge, but it's made harder by the fact that he's also got glasses on top of the mask. So everything looks a little distorted when he talks additionally. As far as do I like this take on the Riddler? The Riddler has become, since the last 25 years or so, where, where the Riddler was sort of reinvented as... Scott Snyder is indebted a lot with stuff like Zero Year, where the Riddler was, has been portrayed as much more calculating and much more of a, like the Arkham games, is basically Jigsaw from the Saw movies. Mm. I think this is a, he's a, he's a good villain for this. But I think there's too many Heath Ledger Joker parallels for me 
in his yeah. hell. There's scenes. There, there's a couple scenes that might as well be from The Dark Knight. Yeah, I have, I have, uh, I have them down in my yeah. notes. Absolutely. It's just impossible to get past. And that's also strange because the Joker and the Riddler, to a lot of people, could be the same character. It's been tough to differentiate sometimes, and a lot of has to do with Frank Gorshin and Jim Carrey. But as far as what Dano does with it. I think he's he's great, but I, I like Paul Dano in almost everything because he's got one of the most punchable faces. He really does. Hollywood, and he gets the shit beaten out of him in almost all of his movies. If you've seen <laughs> Prisoners, Hugh Jackman, and Jake Gyllenhaal both beat the shit out of him. If you've seen 12 Years a Slave, he gets his ass beat. Swiss Army Man, life just beat him down. Hell, Love and Mercy, he played Brian Wilson. Oh, yeah, right that's now. right. I forgot he was Brian Wilson. Uh, is I don't get a whole lot of Riddler vibes in the sense that I don't feel like Batman is being challenged all that much intellectually in the way that he mm. interacts with the. It's more philosophical. It's more ethics-based. But to me, that's too similar to what Christopher Nolan explored in The Dark Knight between Batman and Joker. So I don't think Dana was the problem here. I just think the combination of being too close to Heath Ledger's Joker and Kevin Spacey's character from Seven makes it difficult for this to be something that I can claim as as one of the best Batman villains. To where, it, speaking of no one, it reminds me a lot of Tom Hardy's being, where I think he gives a, a great performance, but he seems at times underwritten for being the quote-unquote main villain of the movie. We're seeing this opening kill as the Riddler is going after the mayor. And I have to say, you know, when I saw this in theaters, I, I spent the entire time thinking I had just seen the first R-rated Batman film. But if I thought Nolan got away with murder in his showing of Two-Face in The Dark Knight, Matt Reeves got away with a mass suicide in this film. The intensity in this kill, the way they get a fuck word out later, this totally plays as R to me. Did you guys feel that? Oh yeah, absolutely. This is, I think, as close as you get to that line without going over. And they easily would have had a reason to put an R on this, even just as it is. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I definitely got those vibes. But I think more so than any... Batman movie up to this point. From start to finish, this is, I think, the Batman movie that has the biggest sense of dread. The Dark Knight's pretty close, but that's propelled by some phenomenal action yep. set pieces, yep. which this movie doesn't really have. So because of that and the fact that there's a conspiracy element, there's a mystery element that plays with the noir aesthetic. So what they set up here with this opening kill, I'm surprised that they went as far as they did, but I mean, some of the shots are just, there's that shot of the mayor gets up and Riddler's already standing behind him. Yep. And this yeah. is where I think the mask actually benefits him. Because it's sort of the Michael Myers effect where you don't know what he's thinking. And he can just appear and it's it's a startling effect whenever it happens. See, when we had that, when I first noticed that it was going to be a serial killer while he was in that outfit, I thought we were going to have multiples. And by the end of this movie where we had, you know, his followers, his acolyte, acolytes, whatever you want to put them, I thought we were going to see a series of Riddlers all done up this way. And I think that would have been terrifying on the city. Dano does something interesting that I, I, I do like where, you know, he does it a couple times in this movie. The way he holds this tape as he prepares this body, he, we see him do that a couple times here. It's just, it's very, very uh, scary. When I went in the theaters to see this for the first time, I was so pissed because I looked like two seats to the left. There was like the kid who had to have been about eight, nine years old. And I'm like, why would you take a kid to this? What you mentioned, though, is exactly how you talk about, you know, Michael Myers and, and seeing that. It's almost that same look, that appreciation of the tool that he's about to use. 
you know, and you get that with Michael of him just sometimes just head cocked a little bit to the side, looking at the knife, enjoying his work. And there's definitely that at play here with what Dano is doing. Duct tape has never sounded more terrifying. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, just that, cause it, it makes just that, that indistinguishable sound mm-hmm. when you stretch it. It's a great audio cue to complement a character that the Riddlers had death traps, but I like that he's not building these giant ghetto death trap Disneyland that the Riddler and the Arkham games did. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it's, it's very grounded. What I like is that this is a world that feels grounded but it doesn't preclude the idea of introducing more fantastical elements later. So we go from here into the first journal entry of our title character, played by Robert Pattinson. Uh, Let's get to it. Let's talk about Sparkly Rob here. Like I said in the beginning, I I heard the casting choice. I thought it was a tremendous choice. I have liked Pattinson in a number of things. Even that first Twilight film, which I hold as a halfway decent film, too bad the rest of the series sucked, and no, we will never be covering that series. But I was enthused because I felt Pattinson could play the broody hero of this story very well. I was worried, though. I was worried about his Bruce because while I had no doubt he could play Bruce in the mask, who is reserved by nature, could he be someone who can trade barbs with Alfred and look like he's even having a little bit of fun? Because even Bale had that great scene in Begins where he's around the table and just proclaims, anyone who spends his life dressed as a bat clearly has problems. Like, Pattinson's not going to be doing that here. Fortunately, that's not what this movie is. We will not be spending this podcast talking about dual identities because Reeves is not concerned with showing that, which I respected. We're not going to see the pearls. We're not going to see the parents be killed. This is a Batman movie with all eyes on him in the suit at almost all times. And in that regard, I think Pattinson's great in this role. What about you guys? I agree with you that way. I do miss some levity because there's no joy to be had in this. There's some fun and some action, but this is a dark, dour drama. And we've never had that for a Titan Cates film, at least not on this kind of level with this kind of IP ever. So... I I can't think of any levity that really happens in this, except maybe from the Penguin, and that's very, very far and few between. But he doesn't give us Bruce, or the Bruce that he gives us is a Bruce that's not interested in being Bruce. And that's an interesting way to play it, because it's always been about the dual identity, the two halves, trying to be Bruce while trying to be Batman. And he went ahead and went, ah, fuck it, we're going to throw that out the window. It's an important point by the end of this movie, that he needs, he understands he needs to learn how to be Bruce, but this is a Bruce who is obsessed with being the Batman. That's all he wants to be. He doesn't want to be Bruce Wayne anymore. His reason for being is to be Batman. When this was coming out, and I had seen the trailers, which, as great as they were, there was a part of me that felt it was too indebted to what Christopher Nolan had done. So my perspective going in was, he being Matt Reeves, he's got to take this character and do something that the other movies really haven't explored. And I think he captures that, because this is a the bat, literally the Batman who exclusively views himself as Batman. Even when he is out of the cowl for his scenes, there is no discrepancy or line of demarcation between how he acts in the suit versus how he acts in the suit that he has to wear in public at a funeral, for example. I like that angle, and I like that as a starting point for this version of a character who is in year two, so 
little bit further along than Christian Bale's Batman was in The Dark Knight. But that one had really... It's the inverse. Batman Begins was Bruce Wayne entirely learning that he had to create a, a public persona, but really becoming Batman. It's in the goddamn title. But here, it's the inverse. It's the Batman learning that he cannot live entirely in that mindset because he's putting out the little fires, but there's so much more that needs to be done that it necessitates a public persona in both viewpoints. So I like that approach, and I think Pattinson plays that well, but I was a little worried about these narrations. Yeah. Because I am not a fan of Blade Runner. To drop that mic it's an opinion that's one of my more controversial ones. And one of the reasons why I don't like that movie is Harrison Ford's narration. I know it's rectified in one of the 8,000 cuts of that movie that exist. I couldn't tell you which one because there's so many. But that hard-boiled detective sounds like Harrison Ford during the Star Wars Holiday Special where he did not give a fuck. It serves the same purpose here. And visually, there is some Blade Runner stuff with the rain and mm-hmm. that, that greenish that greenish hue. The, the clear umbrellas. Yeah. So I was thinking of Blade Runner a lot, combination of the narration and some of the visual cues, but it adds to making this feel more like a comic book, but because his narrations are so one note, because that's the performance and the take he's being directed to give, and the fact that they go on for a pretty decent amount of time, mm-hmm. which is a, a message statement that this movie really runs with, I was a little worried as it was starting to begin. I will say, you hit on the part that, that resonated for me early with it, and it's the reason I did like them, is it was a very comic book feel. It feels like those panels that you get where it's the internal narration that Batman does quite a bit, and we've never had that in movies before. Yeah, they go on long. They go on a little too long and too frequent. But I, I was struck that it was really the first time that somebody was like, I'm going to take that internal narration that you can do on a page in a different color, different font, and I'm going to try to find a way to make it work in a movie. Yeah, this is really the first one that's done it outside of the Watchmen movie. Yeah. Um, that I can think of on, on something this big of a scale. Yeah, and he uses the story choice of, he's not just saying this as panels, he's putting this in his journal. So I, I think in that way he's written it very well to make it work in this film. So Batman says he must choose his targets carefully as he can't be everywhere. And the signal is more than a calling. It's a warning to criminals on the streets. And I am summarizing that because it's actually, as Matt said, that goes, that narration goes on a little long. But as you, as you guys have also said, I think it adds to the narrative of this film. Now, Matt, we're going to see this narration a lot. Just get to it now. I mean, do you think this adds to the narrative or do you think it kind of takes it away like Blade Runner did? I think it gets better as it goes along because I realize as it develops, it's a way for him to have internal monologue and character development that is internalized. You know, it's not just through what he does in the movie. So I think it's also important because this is a, a Batman who does not interact as Bruce Wayne whatsoever in my opinion. So I think I think it's a it was a choice that they, they needed to make and it and it does get better. But the, the opening one as a one off as I was sitting there in the theater going, if they use this every twenty minutes, this could get annoying and monotonous very quickly. Mm-hmm. Reeves is illustrating this narration with multiple crimes being shown and the one we linger on is of this gang on a train. They get out and try initiating a new member. 
But here's Batch to put an end to it with the badass little scene that I feel Reeves put here to put all doubts away. That this wasn't going to be a Batman who just broods in his cave waiting for things to happen like we saw with Michael Keaton in those first two Burton films. He's here to kick ass and kick ass he does until he, proclaim, he proclaims, I am vengeance. I thought that was a little too much, but other than that, I really dig dig this first fight scene with Batman. How'd you guys feel about the way Batman fights in the very first frames? I love the reveal of him coming out of the shadows. Yeah, that was cool. I I mean, he is a horror character to these bad guys, you know, to these criminals throughout the city. And I think that's an important take that we've never really gotten before. And every time we you get this hallway shot or this alley shot of blackness, and you're just waiting for that shadow of Bat to start emerging. Damn, it, it definitely does something. It cracks me up that this thing is the one that gets away. It's the kid that hesitates mm-hmm. with this gang member. He's on the DC show Titans, and that's Tim Drake. So he actually becomes Robin. Oh, shit. <laughs> Tim Batman on the DC show. Oh, Christ. Uh, just a funny little tie-in. He sets a tone so, so well in this opening little bit. It's just like, look. This is not a Batman movie y'all have seen before. And he's kind of subverting those expectations throughout. Also a Batman who is able to be ruthless and bloodthirsty without going as far as Snyder's Batman, where he's outright murdering people. Now, incapacitate them would very likely put them in a hospital or a coma, but but he won't openly kill them. (laughs) Batman then heads to the crime scene where he meets up with Lieutenant Gordon, played by Jeffrey fucking Wright. Hell yeah. Now, we reviewed this guy in Bond and The Hunger Games, and I said in those shows, I just can't stand his hefty way of delivering lines. I find his acting style to be completely distracting. Bring J.K. Simmons back, for Christ's sake. I, I can't stand this guy. Well, Gary, I have to disagree with you. <laughs> on how you find Jeffrey Wright's performance to be. You know what? I'll say it. Best Gordon. I'll, I'll drop that mic right now. And uh, Better than Pat Hingle? Like... <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, well, we never... I want to see. I don't want to see Jeffrey Wright in his uh, bathrobe showing up at the bath <laughs> no, no, that's, that's one thing. Really? You're calling, you're calling uh, more than... Uh, you like it more than Oldman, too, huh? Yeah, I think they're, they're, they're pretty close. Not just because this Gordon is exactly basically where Gary Oldman's was in Pet and Begins. It's almost the exact same start point. But what I like about this one is how closely he works with Batman early on. And that Gordon is willing to stick his neck out much more than he should. Because in Batman Begins, because of how that movie's structured, he doesn't really work with Gordon until the third act when the, when the gas, you know, the water pipes, somebody poisons the water hole to quote Toy Story. <laughs> but, but because here it's, you know, this is year two, and this is indebted to year one, Frank Miller's comic, where Gordon is not commissioner, he's still lieutenant. I think Jeffrey Wright works well in this. I think his his understated type of acting in this is a good complement to what Pattinson is doing. You don't think Pattinson's understated? Uh, I wouldn't call it underst- understated. I would call it as, um, he puts the B in both Batman and Brooding. I'll say that. <laughs> be a capital B. <laughs> Adam, what about you, sir? How do you feel about Lieutenant Gordon? I think Jeffrey Wright is absolutely fantastic. I think I think he's a great Felix. I think he's a great Watu for What If? And I think he's a great Jim Gordon. I love him on Westworld as well. Wright is the right choice for me when it comes to putting him in a movie. I'm always ready for this guy to show up. We're getting an investigation into the scene of the crime that we saw in the beginning of the film. 
I love how even the other cops here, they're like, all right, what the fuck is this guy in a bat suit doing here? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Which everybody in the audience, I bet, was thinking as well. Riddler leaves a card asking to play a game, Jigsaw style, and this really has a seven feel to it. Good job, Reeves. You gave us something none of us asked for. An hour and a half longer remake of seven. <laughs> what do you guys feel about this, this whole scene of the crime and the way we're getting in? I mean, this is something we've never seen in a Batman film, have we? Well... It's not that Batman hasn't been at crime scenes before, but I like that he has to do a lot more forensics work. He's actually as close to a detective as we've seen for a consistent movie. The Dark Knight has parts where he does detective work, like with the thumbprint on the bullet. He has to do the the ballistics tests, things like that. But it's not 100% there because he's still rough around the edges. I think Reeves is making it a point as he continues making these movies, if he gets that opportunity... I think these will all be detective stories and Batman having to use his mind for a a bunch of it. Not the entirety, because people want Batman to punch people. Especially if he wears a blue suit and his name is Martha, uh, or his mom's name is Martha. God damn it. I'm saying goddamn more than All-Star Batman and Robin if you've read that comic. (laughs) (laughs) With the goddamn Goudreau. I like the amount of stuff it to do. Yeah, it's indebted to seven. Even look at the color palette. Absolutely. But let's remember, I think it's a good movie, but I'm not one of those people who thinks it's one of the greatest detective stories ever made. And I like that we, we don't know Riddler's angle just yet, whereas in seven, we know immediately it's the seven deadly sins. Like, they figured that out in the first discussion with Arlie Ermey, don't they? Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> I definitely have things to say about the forensics work once we uh, get further into the film. I like this is done here, especially this crime scene. And, and, and I don't want this to be a two-hour discussion of us comparing it to other stuff, but when it comes to Seven, I don't take it from just the movie, you know, and the comparisons for a plot and killer and stuff, but some of these shots feel very Fincher-esque in the way that they're laid out in the cinematography behind it. I love the low angles of watching Batman walk in. I love the police force that is just antagonistic towards him and is very resentful that he's even allowed in. You know, I think it plays very nicely that way. The only person on the co- on the force who believes in him is Jim. That's an important relationship, I think, to establish. From a detective standpoint, I'm so fucking happy that we get Detective Batman. It's an important part that we don't get very often. As Matt said, it, we got it a little bit in the Dark Knight, and that was about it. When things like this happen, we start to get clues and put them together. I'm one of the people that fucking pops in a theater and just like, woohoo, Detective Batman. You know? Just because it's what you want to see. You want to see the world's greatest detective. You want to see the Dark Knight detective. So more of that would be great. Now, some of these clues and some of what he puts together is a little too simple. You could have went back to the, give the script a little more once over because, you know, the whole, what does a liar do? He, he lies still. Some of these are more just play on words as opposed to actual riddles. Yeah, it's not a, not a riddle. It's like um, <laughs> it's like uh, the missiles that explode in the, the 66 movie, where they're just jokes in the form of riddles. <laughs> but at least this is a Batman year two. But I like that he's so in his own headspace that stuff that seems obvious, he can't see because he is the Daniel Day-Lewis of being Batman, where that's all he thinks about. Oh, boy. Take the scissors to the final 45 pages of the script, and I think you could take out some of the detective work here, but like I said, I'll get to it. We find out that the kid found the body, and Batman takes a long look at him as Nirvana's Something in the Way plays, and this is where we're finding the theme of the movie, which is feeling orphaned. 
that's going to be everywhere in the course of this film. Uh, Nirvana is something in the way. What an interesting choice. Hell, this wasn't even a single, I believe, off that Nevermind album. No, it's amazing how everybody acts like this was their favorite fucking Nirvana song. And I can guarantee, and I grew up in this era, and so did you, this was not a hit. No. (laughs) It's a a great song, but unless you listen to, like, track eight of that album and got all the way, this was not a radio single, was not a B-side on a single cassette that we bought. It didn't exist. Yeah, and they played a lot here, and I, I guess what Pattinson was saying was Reeves made him listen to this as he was getting in character. And Reeves actually listened to it as he was writing the script. And so that was kind of the headspace he was looking for. And then we have Michael Giacano's score, which, God, you just have boom, 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 boom. The Darth Vader mark? Yeah, exactly. Like, this is all stuff (laughs) we've... Which is what it is? That's exactly what it is, dude. It's all stuff we've heard before. And I was not impressed with the score. Something in the way is it's kind of perfect for the Batman character. I didn't really gripe about that. Ava Maria, my God, we hear that ten times in this movie. I don't know. What do you guys think about the music choices here? Well, let me say this. For the record, never. I think that track, it was like the last track on Nevermind. It's, I think it's number Yeah, 12. it's the very last track, yeah. Yeah, the very last track. It's not Come As You Are, and it's not Smells Like Teen Spirit. So anyone who claims that that's their favorite Nirvana song, they've always been a fan, is full of hipstery bullshit. But... <laughs> As derivative as it is, I fucking love the Batman theme that Giacchino stole. It was like the same way Rogue One stole Planes to the Death Star. I think Giacchino stole John Williams' composition off Endor and that shield base. I think the score in certain places is great. At other times, it feels too much like an afterthought in the grand scheme of things. Because if there's one thing this movie is, it's grand and it's long. Matt kind of hit exactly the way that I was going to reference the score, was that there's times where it feels like it's just there because they needed to put music there, but there's times where it feels absolutely perfect and just drives and gets that mood and just emotion really, really going. For Crap It on Nirvana there a little bit, something in the way, I think is a great choice. Like, I really like the way the song plays. I enjoy the song, and I think it fits this movie really well. I loved it in that first teaser trailer that they did. When they'd only been filming for like four weeks at that point, and somehow they cut a trailer. Yeah. I think the music does well. Giacchino, it, man, he, I don't think that I can look at a film from start to end and go, man, he scored that entire movie great. <laughs> He's got parts of it throughout that I really enjoy and parts of it I think you could have done something else with. The Batman theme itself, yes, it's Darth Vader walking down with Kate flowing, and I guess that's why it fits. And in parts of this movie, I'm like, it really doesn't go here. And other times, you're fist pumping. She's like, fucking yeah, Batman. Bum, 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 bum. So it's it's tough. There's times where it really gets you going with the mood. And when it does that, it's impactful. I got to say something. I, I got to declaim something that you, you just said in your summarization there. This, unlike Zack Snyder, is not a fist pumping movie. I don't think there's one thing Batman does in this movie where you're going to get up and go, yeah! Like how Wonder Woman put her wrist in front of Doomsday's fire. We're not going to see any moments like that. This is all about mood. I will respectfully disagree in one key instance. Really? Okay. Get up. All right. We'll, we'll get there. We'll get there. Uh, and the funny thing about Giacchino is that I think a lot of his stuff in here is okay, but I love his Doctor Strange theme. I love his incredible score, which we'll talk about down the line. So there are scores that I love people, and I will gladly talk about. But here, this is not Danny Elfman and Hans Zimmer. 
I'll say that. So we get a press conference, and Batman says that he just doesn't feel like he's making a difference in the city's beyond saving. And I'll say this, and I know I said it a lot while reviewing Snyder's films, but this Gotham, and film in general, is beautifully shot. I do love the look. I do love the feel. Like, the rain, the streets are just drenched in rain. These rain machines were working fucking overtime here. And as you said, Adam, it definitely has a Fincher look, doesn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Ridley Scott says, damn, that rain machine's working hard. <laughs> what are these things he puts in his eyes? Camera. That's a camera. Okay. It's a, it's basically a, yeah, video camera contact, which I like the reveal of this. Mm-hmm. You know, it was kind of, it was a little surprise. It was like, okay. And then the way that they use it later. So I'm glad they set it up for what we get later with Cat because you don't expect it. But it, it's an interesting way to incorporate technology where the rest of this film is so kind of back to basics. Yeah, we don't have too many gadgets in this one. No. And we're also seeing with his eye makeup just running all over his face. And, you know, we, we did say in those in those earlier Batman films, they would shine light in Batman's eyes through the mask. But we always knew that he was wearing the eye makeup, but we never saw it when he took off his mask. Here we actually see it. And uh, I kind of respected that. I kind of dug what, what Matt Reeves did with this. Well, I like how he always looks perpetually exhausted. Yeah. You can tell this is a guy who sleeps only the absolute minimum to have any kind of brain function. So I, I like that. Even though his suit is relatively pristine, it's still not complete, and he's sloppy with how he puts on the, you know, the guy liner. You mentioned that, Matt. I also love when we get the reveal of his back. His back is just thrashed. All those whip marks back there. It's uh, really, really cool how we're seeing just how beat up this Batman is, even though he's only been doing it for, what, two years? Yep. And this is when we meet our Alfred... Andy Circus. Now, Reeves had worked with Circus a number of times on those eight films and thought of no one else to bring in for this important role in Bruce's life. I want to say it, my favorite Alfred of the series. I love Andy Circus in this role. Alfred Strong. <laughs> <laughs> I I think he does a good job. I don't I don't think he's my favorite. I'm really glad that he got something else to do this year other than just direct Venom 2. <laughs> Poor, poor bastard, and, and I hope he's brought back. I think, which is weird, because I think they changed something. that I think they brought him in just to kill him off. I think there was some reshoots that changed that later on in the film. But I think Circus does a dang good job. I don't know if he's Jeremy Irons for me, but I think they're going with that route, or that type of also Alfred that we got in the Gotham series. You actually can believe this guy was a former SAS soldier. I think Circus is terrific. I'm always happy when he's actually getting to act in a movie. Yeah. Because he will always be Gollum. Yeah. Or, or Caesar. It's just, it comes with the territory when you do something that revolutionary. But anytime I see him actually giving a performance where he's not an effect, I love seeing him. Like, I thought he was great in Black Panther. I was pissed that they killed him off. Yeah. And here, he's nowhere near the focal point that I thought he was going to be. Alfred's not in this movie a lot, but I think that's important to isolate him in a movie where Batman is entirely in his own headspace. Because I think gradually we're going to see them get closer. Because it's it's pretty close to hostile. Not that hostile, everybody. Cause <laughs> I don't want to talk about any Eli Roth movies, but talking about doing new takes on Alfred, like this is one who clearly has a military background mm-hmm. based on you know how he carries himself. He's got a cane. He's got facial scars. So I, I think the groundwork is here. And I'm I'm happy that the movie left me wanting more. And he's got a fucking great scene later he on does. in the movie, though. Yeah. 
that, to me, shows, because I tell everyone, Andy Serkis is one of our best, one of the best actors out there. And everyone's like, oh, why? Because he can just do Gollum and move around? I'm like, no. Did you see the Batman? (laughs) And, like, I I show them another movie he did called, um, have you ever seen a little movie, it's kind of hard to find, but it's called 24-Hour Party People? Yes, with Marilyn Manson. Uh, He's fucking awesome in that movie. Yeah. 13 Going on 30, he was great in. Yeah, 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 he's very funny. Yeah. I don't blame him for taking the money and run Mm -hmm. on Venom 2. I don't either. Uh, And I was very bummed that, you know, you had him in Star Wars and didn't really utilize him all that much. Mm -hmm. Which we'll talk about next year. So Bruce says that what he's doing is his family's legacy and he can't do anything about it. And they start trying to decipher one of Riddler's riddles and comes up with Drive. Now, they're in the garage of the mayor, and they find scissors in a tire, and they find a thumb drive. (laughs) Boy, you love that one, don't you? I I could not believe that they actually severed a thumb to make a fucking thumb drive joke. PG-13, people. (laughs) That is some dark, again, not a riddle, Um, that is some dark, dark, funny humor. All right, so Reeves is going all in and saying, you want a Batman who's a detective? Here he is. And, you know, every time I heard someone bitching that Batman is never shown as a detective, it always puts me in mind of people who bitch because for years Superman was never shown to punch people on screen. Like, it's all superfluous to me, and it just makes me laugh. The, the action in all those films speaks for themselves, but honestly, detecting in this movie, he eventually drags it down, and is one of my big, big complaints is that it wears out its welcome, and frankly, this movie is too damn long. Yeah, you're not going to find me arguing that point. All right, well, is this where I can rip the rip the Band-Aid off and just give my biggest complaint? Oh. This is a two-hour story that they dragged out to three hours. Yep. yep. I think you can have a, a very tight, very suspenseful, and entirely functional two-hour movie with, with everything that this movie contains. Absolutely. There are good scenes. If you ask me, like, stuff that I would cut, the stuff I would say would require some big changes in the script and some maybe some additions. But, yeah, I think at times it's a little too self-indulgent. But, honestly, this is the same problem I had with The Dark Knight, where it feels like the movie's over. And it's like, nope, we got one last thing we got to wrap up. And it's like, to, uh, to quote Chad D., if you listen to the Binge Sportscast, oh, boy. <laughs> like, <laughs> we'll see... I, I thought of The Dark Knight too, but I don't feel the length when I watch The Dark Knight. It, it's just, oh, I do. No, I, I don't. I feel like I'm so encompassed in that world and the pathos that Lo- Nolan's throwing at me that I don't feel it. Here, I really felt it. There's a point in this movie where I realized that I had been there for two and a half hours. Because for most of it, I am entirely with it. Mm-hmm. There's nothing where I watch the scene, I'm like, oh my God, act that completely. But as it goes along... There's a pivot point, which we'll get to, where I felt, okay, I understand what you're doing, but there was a way to compromise and make this a little bit more condensed and a little bit more tactile. It's the way of, and I saw it as well this year, we won't talk about it for a little bit, but the most recent Jurassic World movie, where you basically had the scripts for two different movies, and you decided to make one. And in making one, you made that one just way more taxing and a lot longer than it needed to be. So on this thumb drive, they find this video footage of Penguin with this female at the Iceberg Lounge. 
Batman, he walks through the rain right into the Iceberg Lounge, and he has to force his way in. He's fighting thugs on the stairs until he reaches Penguin, played by Robert De Niro. No, wait. This is Colin Farrell. Now, in the lead-up to this, the three of us expressed disbelief that this makeup job was on Farrell, of all people. And I don't think I'm spoiling anything right now by saying that he is the highlight of the film for me. I fucking love this Penguin. So, Adam alluded to it earlier where I don't know if this was an intentional misdirect on the part of Warner Brothers, but there were shots of him walking in his regular street clothes, but he had silver streaks in his hair and he was carrying an umbrella. I thought that was the look they're going with. And then when the trailer released, one of you mentioned this where there's that shot of him and I'm like, all right, who the hell that character? And then you're like, oh, that's Colin Farrell. And you kind of have to to do a double take because it is a, it is a prosthetic job that is so astonishing that I have not seen one this good in a long time in a movie like this because I've seen Watchmen has some of the worst old age makeup I've ever seen in a movie. Uh, yeah. it, it, it looks like pancake batter in certain scenes. So this is great, but I was very annoyed with the people saying, "Why did you just cast somebody who looks like that?" Because my response is acting is about being someone other than yourself. And if you're Colin Farrell, who is a sex symbol, has been a leading man for a long time, I would jump at the chance to do something this immersive. And goddamn does he seize every opportunity. He is not just resembling De Niro. There are parts where he sounds like him from The Untouchables. It is a version that I did not realize this was the version of Penguin I wanted until I actually got it. I'm not going to say he's the, he's the best part of the movie, but he's the the levity that this movie needs. Because not just of how, you know, the, whoa, whoa, take it easy, sweetheart. You know, that, that very thick New York accent. He has some funny lines where, where he makes the joke about the mayor's wife being dead. And he goes, oh, too soon? Yeah. <laughs> I love that line. <laughs> he is so fucking good in this movie. And I cannot wait for his HBO Max show. It's weird seeing him here because... I mean, we're going to get to it eventually in the next couple of years, but he played Bullseye in Daredevil how many years ago with Ben Affleck? Almost 20? Almost 20 years ago. Yeah, and so I didn't think I'd ever see him in another combo film again, but he was the highlight of that one. Not to spoil the review, but he was... Yeah, he was the, he was the best part of it. Absolutely he was. So, um, and this is where we could talk about Jonah Hill. Oh, yeah, please do. They offered him both villain roles, and he said, I want $10 million dollars which would have been twice what Pattinson... No, Pattinson made um, three. Yeah, more than yeah. that. So Hill said, F you guys. So he is basically... Jonah Hill has basically become the way he's portrayed and this is the end. <laughs> that is basically him now. So I don't know how you go from Jonah Hill to Paul Dano and Colin Farrell. I, I don't understand. That is such a giant 180. But I'm, gl- I'm so glad that all the stars aligned and Colin Farrell took this and Matt Reeves came up with this version, who is basically, at this juncture, he's Fredo Corleone in The Godfather. Yes. Nobody thinks anything of him, but he's much more intelligent than Fredo ever was. Mm-hmm. Maybe we'll do The Godfather at some point. Down I would love to. Knows. But I, I think he is, he's so fucking good. And, yeah, it's different, but this is, to me, taking a character and reinventing him without making him something like Batman Returns where he's just he's he's literally a fucking pet. <laughs> like like we don't see this character eating any raw fish, thankfully. <laughs> Although I, I would believe it when they, if he did. Yeah, he's tremendous here. And uh by the way, Matt, save the uh Jonah Hill talk cuz we'll get to him later on this year. 
Adam, what about you, sir? How do you feel about Farrell's Penguin? As a fan of Farrell in general, I was excited that he was going to be in this film. That same picture that Matt had talked about, uh, I was like, cool, we're doing Emperor Penguin, right on. Then I was hoping maybe we'd get the characterization that we get in the Batman Telltale games, where we get Oswald and Bruce, because they're close to the same age, going at it. Nope, they subverted all the expectations. Gilla Grindelwald said, holy shit, that's some great makeup you got there. <laughs> he's so transfixed, and he's just amazing. He steals the scenes when he's in. And agreed, I'm not going to say he's the best thing in this movie, but when he's on screen, he's the best thing on screen. Absolutely. Yeah, and I had to say in my my discourse with others, not you two, sadly, because I knew we we were saving it for the right time, but I always told people, if you're going to this movie expecting to see Penguin, you're going to be disappointed. He is here. He is integral to the story. But this is very much laying the seeds, sort of taking what Ben begins tease, the idea of escalation. You get that with the fullest the Joker with the tease at the end, but this is clearly, we are setting some of these characters up to become the versions that you are familiar with. This is the one thing that the movie actually has some restraint on, and I'm glad they do, because I think it's got the most potential, is their use of Penguin. It's fantastic. Uh, so i got to ask you, because you're the comic book fan, Adam, the, the, the twin bouncers. Uh-huh. I thought that was their take on Tweedledee and Tweedledum. Yeah, that's exactly what I thought it was, too. I thought it was his ways of having fun with that. Now, this interaction, though, it goes nowhere, except that he finds another woman hanging around. But this woman, who we find out is Selena Kyle, she gets in a taxi and tells a woman on her cell phone that everything's going to be all right. Now, let's talk about our Selena Kyle, played by Zoe Kravitz. This was one casting choice I wasn't really anxious for, because honestly, how do you follow Halle Berry? By letting it be Selena Kyle. <laughs> no, she did nothing for me in first class. And go back and listen to that review. I did not really like her in that movie. And I wasn't sure how she could physically manifest into Catwoman. I think she does fine. And the best compliment I can give is that she doesn't embarrass herself by giving herself a cat bath. <laughs> I think she's okay. She's not ruinous for me, but I think this movie could have done without her. I'm the opposite. She was my biggest surprise. Really? This reminded me of... I was skeptical when they said Mark Ruffalo was going to play the Hulk in the Avengers because I wanted to see Ed Norton just to see who would kill who first between him and Robert Downey Jr. fighting for screen time. Because I'm with you. I did not like her in first class. I thought her accent in Fantastic Beasts 2 was awful. Mm-hmm. I am beyond sick. Like, my nine lives have run out when it comes to Catwoman. Gotham, to me, killed any interest I had in seeing her, despite me really liking that take. Because she's in that show every goddamn episode, basically. And I had to deal with that for five years. That show went on for a hundred motherfucking episodes. (laughs) Inexplicably. And when I heard she was going to be in this, I said, why? We had just had The Dark Knight Rises, where I will give, you know, at least this movie, unlike Christopher Nolan, they're not afraid to use the the names like Penguin, those kind of high-level comic book names. Although, I don't think she's ever referred to as Catwoman in this movie. But then again, neither were they in Hathaway, so... Zoe Kravitz, I think, does a really good job. And I was su- I was pleasantly surprised. Part of me, though, when I heard Ana de Armas was auditioning, I was like, please pick her. Because I feel about her the way f- you feel about Anya Taylor-Joy. Except not that way. <laughs> <laughs> no, I don't feel that way about Anya Taylor-Joy either. I just love seeing her in everything she's in. I thought she would have the ability to play the role pretty good. She's not my favorite Catwoman. That is still Anne Hathaway by a pretty big stretch, but I think she does good. Right before this, I had watched Kimmy, and I think that brought some 
sense of, of kind of action and some let, let her be a role that I didn't really expect. And it let me know that she could play a femme that was going to be vulnerable, but still be able to carry the action beats when necessary. And I, I think she does a good job. I think she's a good match with Pattinson. I don't think this is a Catwoman I'd want to see on her own. Looking at the way this story went, one of the first things I hoped, because I know they had talked about, oh, and Catwoman's going to get her own movie. And I was thinking, great, I'd love to see Catwoman win in Rome. It's one of my favorite Catwoman standalone stories. But Zoe Kravitz, Catwoman, I would have no desire whatsoever to see her do her own thing. But I think with our pets, I think they're a good match. For the record, in the same way that you think Anne Hathaway is your favorite Catwoman by a decent margin, 60 years later, for me, it's still Julie Newmar. Now, Kravitz and Pattinson have been friends for a while, so I think there's a reason why their chemistry pretty much crackles every time they're on screen together. And that's one thing I will give this Catwoman is she has more chemistry with Batman than we've seen before. We're not seeing her dress up as Mrs. Kitka like we were <laughs> like back in the 60s. So Batman follows Selena Kyle around, almost stalking her as he interrupts her getting into a safe. And we see a fight between the two as he finds an ID reading Annika. Now, this Annika chick plays a lot into Selena's plot. Is she in the comics, or are they really lovers here? They're lovers. I don't know her at all from the comic. Um, if she is, it's nothing I've read. But I think they're setting it up very clear so that we know that this is a bisexual Selena Kyle. So they head back to her place, and they find the entire place thrashed, and also find out from a conveniently on-TV <laughs> news report that the commissioner has been murdered. And we get a home video similar to the one Joker made in The Dark Knight. In fact, it feels note for note, doesn't it, Matt? <laughs> well, between this and a scene later on, yeah. I was getting way too many Joker vibes from this Riddler. Selina tells Batman about 44 Below, which, as she calls it, is the club within a club. And this is when Batman says that she's going to help him on this and that she's not safe here. We find out that Riddler's theme seems to be rat poison, complete with more symbols and another cipher... So we're, we have more riddles going on here, and they find a letter to Batman, which consists of another riddle. So many damn ciphers in this thing. I was waiting for Jake Gyllenhaal to show up asking <laughs> if he's got freaking horoscope somewhere in this thing. Jesus. <laughs> well, if he showed up, something else would have popped in that <laughs> <laughs> Not just the Dark Knight Rising, folks. You know what I'm saying? I went to say I'd be happier with the dark theater. <laughs> we cut to Selena putting a camera contact lens in her eye as she walks through the club and more infiltrating happens as Batman gets amused at her finding a guy whose nose he broke last night. Batman asks her to pause as he scans IDs. But am I the only one who hates the term drop head? They can't yeah, say drug in this? Weird, this is a weird thing just because the movie is very ambiguous about what time frame it's set in. Yeah. This drug feels very futuristic. This is something that would be better suited for like the Batman Beyond time time yep. frame. Like literally gene splicing as a drug in that continuity. Mm -hmm. We see Peter Sarsgaard as he leads her to, as Batman puts it, half the DA's office. <laughs> All these guys sitting around. And Selina strays away as she finds a girl who knows Annika, and she leaves the transmission with Batman. Batman updates Lieutenant Gordon, and they find out that there's a rat in their midst. And no, not one of those kids that infested last week's movie. Oh no, <laughs> not those rats. We're talking about an actual rat within the ranks. Bruce is going over Selina's tape, where she proclaims to not have a relationship with Alcone. And uh, we're hearing Rat with Wings as Alfred asks where his cufflinks are. 
as he says that his father gave them to him. Which brings up a point. No pearls in this one. We're not having to watch Bruce's parents get slain for the 40th time. Matt, I'm sure you enjoyed not having to see that again, huh? I was enjoying it, but as the movie progressed, I had this voice in the back of my head saying, that doesn't mean the wings are going to be completely out of this story. (laughs) Which I definitely have opinions on. Bruce moves through a crowd chanting, no more lies. And this is when we get our formal introduction to Falcone, played by John Turturro. Amazing casting choice. Interesting casting Uh, choice. mm -hmm. Last time, Matt, we saw John Turturro. He was in the Transformers films. A little bit of a better film here. How do we feel about John Turturro here? I guess Adam's already let his feelings known. Matt, did you like this casting? Probably did I I like it when I heard it. I think he's my favorite part of the movie. Really? to be perfectly honest. Largely because, while I think Tom Wilkinson did a great job, this, to me, is a closer take on Falcone as being one of the, the truly powerful crime lords of Gotham, where he has everybody in his pocket. He can convey a lot, this one level to his voice. And because of that, you have to listen to every single word that he says. And him wearing the sunglasses all the time, I like that touch a lot. He feels very a classical mobster Batman villain. Um, and I think it's just a, it's an absolutely great performance. I mean, I've always liked John Turturro, except when he was standing and when he had to see Devastator's balls. That was a low point, but he's, he's rebounded pretty well. So Falcone calls Bruce the one guy in the city more reclusive than him, and that his dad Thomas saved his life years ago. And then Bruce gets told that he can be more for the city, as philanthropy was big in his family. And then a car busts through as they're paying respects. And here we have another joke by Riddler. Though this guy with the bomb on his chest, named Coulson, I wonder if that was intentional, looks like he belonged on the other end of a Joker plot. This was weird. This is the DA from the club from the night before. This is Sarsgaard. Yeah. Which upset me, because if you're going to have somebody like Peter Sarsgaard in this film, and he's going to play DA, I don't care what you say his last name is, why even have a DA if that DA's not Harvey Dent? Yeah, I was so disappointed because I assumed it was a swerve and we were going to learn that he was Harvey and he was going to be an overarching, you know, that we're going to get a two-faced turn after two or three films. This was such a disappointment because to me it was an utter waste of an actor of this caliber. Oh, yes, I'm disappointed that Sarsgaard is nothing more than a a cog in this plot. But I I thought for sure Harvey Dent was going to be in the movie. Not necessarily Sarsgaard, but I thought he'd be like an intern or like a deputy DA. Something to get the ball rolling, because I've been wanting to see, get get someone who's Pattinson's age, let them grow, let them form a friendship so that it actually means something when he has his fall from grace. As it stands with what's here, this to me is the scene in the Dark Knight when the Joker broadcasts that guy he's got tied and hangs, because mm-hmm. this is sort of almost at the same point, you know, the Riddler's broadcasting uh, on a public server, he's threatening somebody, but the tension's here, especially with, you know, you have a literally a ticking clock, and I could not believe this was PG-13, considering they blow his head yep. clean off. Yeah. Yep. And, uh, and I do like that, the, you know, we talk about the mystery, this thing of who was the rat in the Moroni drug bust, which is the other sort of big mob family for most Batman stories. I think the informant subplot is something that 
I like both how it's implemented and I actually like its payoff. The place explodes as Gordon fakes getting into it with Batman and I do like these shots where Batman is flying down the buildings and he finally takes off in flight. And wouldn't you know it, he wipes out harder than I've seen in any Formula One race this year. This was brutal, man. What a fucking crash. This flying bat want... suit is fun. Yeah. Yeah, and he walks away perfectly unscathed. Yep. Not a mark on his face. <laughs> but you know why, though? Why? Because he's Batman. <laughs> Batman then figures that the rat is in their midst, and from here on out, this movie is going to be about locating a rat. I thought we weren't reviewing, reviewing Graveyard Shift till next year. Rat with wings. <laughs> I can't believe how many, how many times rats are mentioned here. Batman locates... We are, to be fair, we are reviewing The Departed very soon. Yeah, that's true, too. Good point. Batman locates Catwoman and says that this just got complicated as they conveniently find Annika's body. I feel like this is the one time when they're like, you know what, we got to solve this. Let's just solve it right now. And they just put her in this car just to fucking get this plot point out of the way. <laughs> they show up to the same spot and yeah. the body's just in the back of the car. <laughs> yeah. Frank Miller's misbegotten prostitute. Yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. Batman is looking for answers that Selina is not willing to give, and these gunfights are just about finally introducing the new Batmobile. Now, every Batman oh. review we have done where the car comes out for the first time, we pause the podcast and talk about how we feel about it. This one, I absolutely love. Reeves fills it perfectly. And when we, when we do get good looks at it, it is a pretty glorious car. It feels like a souped-up version of a muscle car, and I love it. This is when I'm going to put myself on pause and let Matt have his go here. Well, I need another two minutes so I can finish. <laughs> oh, jeez. Because I love this car so much. Mm. In this context, it would not make sense for Batman to have this tricked-up automobile of death and no. destruction. It is strictly, you know, it's a, it's a muscle. It's exactly a muscle car. With, you know, batteries to power, turbines to speed. And again, it's not fully complete. Like, there's still clearly some, some decal work, but I'm glad it's not the Tumblr, I'll tell you that. Mm. And I'm glad it's not some of those other Batmobiles. But for the the world that this movie is in, and for a Batman who does not yet know how to fully use his resources, this is a great launching point, literally. Because when, when this car showed up, and, and we get this highway chase, this is the, the fist-pumping sequence in the movie. Yeah, this is exactly it. I remember seeing this car beforehand in promo shots and stuff, and I was like, uh, what a boring take on this Batmobile. But when this scene happens, holy crap, this car is a character in this film. It's funny that he kind of, like, flips the clutch, mm-hmm. <laughs> and it lurches before it takes off. But just the rumble, the sound mix, and the sound editing for this scene is fucking superb. The freeways in Gotham in this timeline are obviously as big as the underground sewers and all the other timelines, because this chase goes on for a while. It is glorious. I mean, just to hear the gear shifting, the rev, the screech of the tires, all through this just pounding rain. And this is when the music also, I mean, this is the best scene of the film. It's not even close. This is fan-fucking-tastic. Yep, this is when we get what a lot of people, including Adam, were talking about coming out of the movie, this car chase. And Reeves is doing a lot of things in this scene. He's mounting a GoPro, and we have lots of driving through rain, avoidance of other cars, and this is by far, like you said, Matt, this is by far the closest you're going to get to an adrenaline rush in this movie. And when that Batmobile eventually emerges from that huge ball of flames, Christine style, by the way, totally intended tribute that Reeves put 
in this, which I love. I am just completely in this scene. I love it. And even Penguin yelling as he's being chased, all of this is really working for me. I wish there was more of this in this, quite honestly. I was about to say, Penguin and Colin Farrell acting through that Uh makeup with everything else, but he's still putting on a performance in this scene. Don't discount that, because that takes some work Mm -hmm. to not be overshadowed. And he's selling what's going on around him. It does seem a means to an end, though, because the end result really doesn't accomplish very much to when they, when they finally catch up, uh, Penguin has zero answers, even as he accuses his situation of being good cop, batshit cop, which is a line I loved. Uh, but <laughs> Penguin does put to rest any accusations of him being the rat. And then this line, El Ariata, not La Ariata. <laughs> Feral is chewing up this scenery, and I love Spanish it. Spanish is not your first language, huh? <laughs> Well, you two guys are a hell of a duet here. Why don't you two start harmonizing? Like, <laughs> go on, blast for you old fellas. Like, this is where you realize that, oh yeah, these two guys are freaking more. <laughs> <laughs> but you guys are saying, like, you want a TV show with this. I guess HBO Max is putting a show together with this. I get just enough of him. I think Matt said this earlier, but I'm glad I'm left wanting more of him. I think if you put a show out with him, I think you get pretty tired of him pretty quick. If I had more, it'd probably be too much. If I had less, it wouldn't be enough. That's where I'll leave it. And, and what if they, they leave them tied up? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So they have a computer conversation with Riddler about his next victim. And here we go with more of the orphan symbolism. The orphanage was run by Wayne Enterprises and burned down. More Ava Maria playing as they find the video of Thomas and Bruce putting the sins of the father together to add up to him being the next victim. So this is how they figure out that Bruce is indeed going to be the next victim on his list. Alfred opens a package as Batman tries calling to warn him, but the C4 explosive had already gone off. And for how daring this movie thinks it is, it would have been most daring of all if they had chosen to kill Alfred here. But they pulled their punches. I think they should have killed him. Not only should they have, it is the worst example of chronological misdirection. Yes with how this sequence is shot, because it's a fundamental cheat on the audience. He could look like fucking Darth Vader when that bomb goes off. There is no conceivable way that he would survive that explosion. Mm -hmm. And in a movie that is this grounded, all things considered, it's it's a huge glaring problem that I would have accepted if they had actually killed off Alfred, because I don't think that would be something... They would certainly be controversial, but it would be the thing to really differentiate this from any other iteration, Mm -hmm. that we have a Batman who works entirely on his own, which possibly adds more justification to him taking on a Robin at some point. Yep. It was genuinely surprising when that bomb went off, because it was silent in that theater. And I thought they had actually done it. It reminded me of when Gordon gets shot in The Dark Knight. That's Rising, isn't it? Isn't that right? No, it's the Dark Knight because he gets shot at the um at the funeral. Oh, that's right. Gordon takes a beating in those Nolan films. And one, for him to be standing right next to a bomb that goes off and really not have anything in the way of lasting damage. It's just, why even do it? And this is why I'm convinced that he was killing off Alfred and that him sticking around is reshot. It feels I that just, way, I, doesn't it? It does, because that hospital scene later feels like it's you just shot it literally in somebody's house. You could have dressed it up and got that. Alfred is currently dead in the comics. Oh, is he? Yeah, Tom King, who has taken a lot of shit for some of his writing. But about two years ago, Bane killed Alfred in front of Damian Wayne Robin. Literally snapped his neck. It was it was fucking brutal. And it's not been brought back as of yet. But that really did not go over well, and I think that this was intended to be a death and leave Batman completely on his own. 
without anything but himself. And I think they hesitated. In one respect, I'm glad to see Circus stick around, because I think he's so damn good. But on the other side, you need to do something else with this scene, then. Kill Aunt Harriet that's there. Mm. You know? Yeah. Um, <laughs> it just doesn't... Yeah. So help me if they harmed Aunt Harriet. <laughs> Bruce gets in contact with Selena, who says that she needs to talk to him. So that's where he goes. At this point, it's almost become a video game because he's gone here, he's gone there, you gotta go here, you gotta go there. <laughs> Feels like an Arkham game at this point. Batman meets up with Selina and she says that it's going to be a little too much even for her and asks for Vengeance's help. And this is when we find out that Falcone is Selina's father and that her mom was murdered. I take it this is all from the comics, correct? No, not to my no. knowledge. Okay. Well, but Selena Kyle has always been, when people give her a backstory, she's usually either a prostitute herself, Frank Miller, or she is the spawn of an illegitimate affair. I'm fine with her being Falcone's illegitimate daughter, but it is the problem of, how do I put this delicately and without showing my hand too much? It is the Star Warsification of making a city feel like a neighborhood, where everybody's got to be fucking related to somebody. It didn't upset me, but I really don't need it. Yeah, it just makes it feel a little smaller. Falcone exists and doesn't need to have that relation. Selena doesn't need to have that. I don't need that familial tie for them to matter. Selena says that they need to stand up for Annika and that Riddler's latest target is the Waynes. She kisses them and says that she can take care of herself. And then Pattinson does his best Robert Smith impression as he takes off his cowl and listens to the Riddler's assertion of what the Waynes mean to Gotham. As Martha was in and out of institution, they have left a legacy of mayhem and murder, and he has to pay Why for the sins. Why did you say that name? <laughs> he has to pay for the sins of his father. Now, this right here, especially talking about uh, Thomas Wayne being not as good and positive as we've seen in all the other portrayals, this is something that they did in the Batman Telltale games. And I thought it was a nice way to go about it. There, the Cobblepots felt like they were cheated out Oswald specifically because of the Waynes. And he comes back kind of wanting what Bruce got because he feels as though to him. So I like that possibility that Thomas isn't 100% an angel. I feel that today's day and age, you're not going to be able to deify a billionaire anyway. You know, it's just not going to go. And I do think it's a better way to go about it than we got in Joker. They just made him a despicable asshole. Bruce visits Falcone, who says that Thomas Wayne was no Boy Scout and that Maroney got his father killed. And then Bruce goes to visit Alfred and accuses him of lying to him about what really happened to his father and how good or bad he really was. Alfred also says that he doesn't know whether it was Falcone or not. And Alfred's just like, I don't know for sure. And it could have been a random thug on the street for all he knew. All he knew was that he let Thomas down. And then Bruce says that there's one thing he hasn't gotten past. It's the fear of losing something that he actually cares about. This, for all the shit we gave them for not killing Alfred... Is a pretty damn good scene, and I'm glad they left this in. It gets there. Mm-hmm. But it also starts out with Bruce waking up poor Alfred from a hospital and being a dick. <laughs> yeah. He should have been like, motherfucker, I just got out of a coma. Can you give me, can you give me, a can you give me ten minutes by myself? Can you give me some pudding and ice chips first? <laughs> this ant? But yeah, I do like that they're coming together by the end of it. He looks up and sees the signal, and he gets there and finds out that it wasn't Gordon, but Catwoman, who finds out that it was Falcone who killed Annika. Bruce concludes that Falcons have wings, too, so that rat must be Falcone, right? And then, we're just playing elementary school fucking detective here. 
Yeah, you know that that wheel thing where it's the cow says. Yeah. It's it, 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 it again. That's basically how they're putting all these different ridiculous uh, names together. It's almost operating on the Adam West thing of well, it happened at C C for Catwoman. Yeah. <laughs> and I had to when he showed up and saw her at the signal. He goes, "That signal is not a booty call." <laughs> Every time they're up in this tower, I love the shots. I think it is filmed absolutely beautifully when they're there at sunset. It's a page fresh out of a comic book. I absolutely love when they're up in this abandoned building. Bruce stops Catwoman from going after Falcon until she distracts him by hanging this guy off the roof. And then Batman gets in his car and heads to the club where Catwoman plans to kill Falcon. She tells Falcon that she is his daughter and then shoots at him, saying that it was for her mother. And then we get some muzzle flashes that light up a dark screen, which is actually a pretty cool shot. As Falcone is choking Catwoman out and saying that he made her do it. As Batman knocks him off and stops her from finishing it off. And I'm sorry, this is when the movie should have ended. At this point, I was literally getting ready to get up and leave. I thought the movie was over at this point. Let's solve the riddles, trick the Riddler into being in the same place as Falcone, whatever, and boom. We can end the movie here. But no, we still have 40 fucking minutes left. Matt, is this the point where you thought, man, let's just conclude this movie? I wasn't waiting for it to be over, but I had completely forgotten about the Riddler stuff. Because mm-hmm. I was so immersed in Falcone. It made me uncomfortable in a good sort of way that he was openly trying to murder her by choking her to death. Yep. This is the the mobster who's not afraid to get his hands dirty himself. But yeah, I think all this all this stuff is, is really working for me. Yeah, the scene here I think is done really well. Much like Matt, I forgot about Riddler almost completely until we capture Falcone, we step outside, and... About me being upset, I was so happy that we cast, you know, a great freaking Falcone, and we take him out of the movie as well. Damn it. (laughs) I have a theory he's not dead, and the guy who checked his pulse was in on it. Oh. I like that. The police make their way to the Riddler, and like Seven, it's it's almost like he wanted to be captured, right? Oh, it's exactly (laughs) what it is. Or the Joker. Yeah, Joker and Dark Knight, you're right. Let's see. Con... Silva from Skyfall. Like, th- this is a trope that I hate. Yeah, me too. I am so tired. <laughs> I am so tired of this. Mm-hmm. But I love when they go to Riddler's, uh, Riddler's apartment and they call him Eddie Nashton. Mm-hmm. Not yeah. Enigma, which is his actual, that's his birth name. Yep. And with all the talk about orphans and making the two of them this vendetta, I was dreading the reveal that he was going to be Thomas Wayne's bastard child. <laughs> uh-huh. uh, and, and that's why he was so, like, fixated on the Waynes and on Bruce. I'm glad they didn't go that route, and I'm also glad they didn't make him Thomas Elliot. Do, like, the inverse of Hush, where it's, oh, the Riddler is actually Hush. I thought that's where they were going to go with it. And this capturing of him, it leads to the most famous shot from the trailers as Riddler is face down on the desk, laughs at Batman's presence, and we pan to the coffee on the table, which is shaped like a question mark. Pretty cool shot there. I hate latte art. <laughs> Uh, Gotham City doesn't strike me as the kind of place that would have these baristas no. who give enough of, no. give enough of shit to actually do this. <laughs> they find Riddler's journals as Batman confronts some bats in a cage. He finds a card that says, My Confession, and they find a video he did. We also learn that he has 500 followers, which, come on, man, step up your promotion a little bit. Needed to do one of those paid-for ads. <laughs> no shit. He heads to the Riddler at Arkham, and the Riddler confesses to waiting for this moment his whole life. He just looks up at Batman, and he just utters, Bruce Wayne. 
Dano is really getting into this role, isn't he? <laughs> well, now that he's out from behind the mask, I think he kicks it into another gear here. But I like that this is a bit of a misdirect because you think they're setting up that he knows Bruce Wayne is Batman. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. But actually, he's just fixated on Bruce Wayne. And this is sort of classic Riddler where there's been instances where it is outed that Bruce Wayne is Batman. And he's like, you know, that that's such a clever ruse, but you can't fool me. Mm-hmm. I think that's what they're going for here, but I don't know if it's just because of the fact that it's in a prison and it's an interrogation. It's the, it's the Dark Knight, yep. you know, you complete me scene. Yep. Yep. It, it's just, I think that the shadow of Christopher Nolan is inescapable, whether it was the BBS slash Man of Steel universe or here. Warner Brothers, yeah, they gave him creative control, but Matt Reeves, I don't think he's going far enough away for this to be 100% his own take. Because Nolan started this type of darkness in films, and, you know, Lego Batman made fun of that in his trailers, you know? It's a Nolan aesthetic, but I think Snyder tried it, and we said in those reviews that he didn't really accomplish it that well. And Reeves is really going full tilt with this, but, again, we're not in rated R territory, we're in PG-13 territory, and I don't know, I don't think he goes far enough. Riddler says that, They both know he's looking at the real him right now and that they make a good team. He then says that this isn't how this was supposed to go, that they were supposed to watch everything together. And then we get the line, what's black and blue and dead all over? It's the Batman. More Ava Maria, this time from the Riddler. And then Batman starts going through evidence and finds, what is this that he uncovers when he goes through this? Oh, man. What what, what is this, a snow shovel? What what the fuck is this? When random cop comes in and just like, hey, I know what that piece of hardware is right there. <laughs> this third act. That's a, that's a carpet tool. <laughs> so, God. Uh, I mean, uh, this almost belongs in a Joel Schumacher film, <laughs> this one. <laughs> this is basically that scene in, quote, another superhero property. In The Amazing Spider-Man 2, when Felicity Jones tells Harry Osborn, hey, by the way, there's this secret laboratory yeah. downstairs. Mm-hmm. With all this equipment you should go check out. Uh, where you have this just ancillary character to do something. But I, I do like that he's got, like, when he undoes the floor, and there's that entire, like, map or, or got yeah. Yeah. or layout. But unfortunately, this, to me, is where the movie, it becomes something else entirely. Mm-hmm. Yep. For me, it's not as satisfying, because it's basically, much like The Dark Knight Rises, you're escalating it to the most typical superhero thing of, we're just going to destroy the city. And that's it's, really not what this movie was predicated upon. No, it suddenly turns into the last 30 minutes of The Dark Knight Rises, almost literally. This final hour of this film is not strong at all. I was really with it the first hour. I was pretty with it the second hour. This third hour, not only does it drag, there's just nothing going on of anything that I enjoy. That's a big problem I have with this movie is, man, there are so many things I love about it. But then there are things that, like, this entire last hour, I'm like, come on, like, let's get to it already. And then once they get to it, like you said, Matt, this is not what they've been building this film as. No. There's some interesting things that I like, though. Like, his acolytes, his disciples, are actually physically here. Mm -hmm. And people are like, that's a little bit too extreme. I'm like, look what happened on January 6th. Yep. I thought of that, too. This is exactly... Mm -hmm. Because, to me, why it feels tacked on is because it feels like such a dark reflection of of that. Mm Mm-hmm. With, with the, you know, the car bombs. It's like Matt Reeves watched The Dark Knight Rises and said, yeah, you didn't go far enough with making Gotham no man. Mm-hmm. 
So I'm literally going to. You did it by fire because the fire rises. I'm gonna <laughs> flood this. I'm gonna flood the city. This is no man's land. This is what happens. They breach the seawall. Batman then finds the online video of Edward saying, "Tonight it will all go boom," and that this will cause flooding that will incite terror and panic in the streets. And then we finally, finally have our final set piece. Gunshots are going off as Batman fights more thugs. And I do like this bit of fog causing him to hide and then burst out and surprise them. That was a really cool shot. It was. I'll say this was done so realistically that it gave me the chills to see these people up there with the weapons, to see them start pulling out the magazines, Mm -hmm. setting up and all that. It was eerie with a lot of things that have happened the last couple years. It was enough that it was... You know, unsettling. And and it's meant to be. But it was just, you want to talk about something that felt like a dark reflection of society. This really hit it. Mm-hmm. As the Riddler prepares to shoot Batman, here comes Selina to save the day. She says it's done, and he bursts right up into Gordon. They find Riddler, who claims to be vengeance. And then water flows it- in. Batman lowers himself down and then turns on a bat torch and starts rescuing people. I never saw this, this is, bat the, torch the, before. This shot this overhead shot of him leading the way and a light leading the way is a nicely powerful moment. It, it is shot amazingly. It is a piece of art the way it looks on the screen. No sound, too. Um, it's really, yeah, yeah. It really comes through quite nicely. The one thing earlier, and I've gotten into it back and forth with a lot of people over whether or not it was, when he's laying there and you think, you know, he's out of it and he jabs himself in the leg. You thought it was venom? To me, it's venom. There's no reason that you make it green unless it's Venom. That's just my take. So I do think he'll have, in the way of an escalation like we did in The Dark Knight, I think we'll see some sort of an addiction to this Venom that'll allow him to get hopped up for the next... See, I just thought of it as a adrenaline rush. And I think Matt Reeves has even come out and said that much, too. Like, no, it wasn't Venom. But the thing is, Venom uh, Green is such a distinct calling card. But I like how this is a Batman that he is the Arkham Batman because he can fight 30 guys at the same time but his fists, but if he runs into a room with three guys with guns... <laughs> <laughs> That's a good point. I didn't even think about that. Yeah. That's exactly how those games go. We cut to November 6th as Batman is back to his journal writing ways. The city is underwater, and he can see that everything will get worse before it gets better. He says that vengeance will not change bad acts, and that he has to become more than just vengeance. The cities are angry and scarred like him. And if they can survive it, they can give him the strength to fight. We then cut to Inside Arkham Asylum, where Edward has a conversation with Joker. Where's Joaquin here? In the 80s. I, see, I thought if they were going to do this, I thought the thing to do would bring Joaquin back and have him fight Pattinson in the next film. If you're, you're going to call it the Joker, why not just make it the Joker? Instead of doing this whole, and we talked about it in that movie, but we're doing this whole offshoot bullshit. But we get this other guy, and I, I thought we were getting away from Joker. And I told my friend when we went in, I told him, I said, if Joker shows up in this movie, I'm fucking getting up and walking. Well, at this point, I was almost up and walking anyway. We're at the fucking final five minutes of the film, so I'm not going to get up at this point. But I was pissed, man. I'm like, really? You're bringing this character back again? All right, where the fuck do I start? Number one, don't do this at all. We do not need to see the Joker for a long time, in my humble estimations. Because I want to see a Batman do some other shit, to be perfectly honest. Number two, Reeves was smart to cut that six-minute deleted scene where he talks to him like he's Hannibal Lecter. Because apparently that was going to be like, 
in the middle of the movie, like him and Batman and Joker would actually have a scene together. I can't stand Barry Keoghan as an actor. He's just uglier Ty Sheridan as far as in the acting department. We did not need to see the Joker. It, it might be the most shameless thing I have seen in a very long time. I don't just say that because there was a shameless actor who played the Joker on Gotham, but they couldn't call him the Joker. I hated this so much. If it wasn't for the fact that this movie was already two hours and 45 minutes and there was five minutes left to go, I would have knocked it a, a point entirely. If you were going to set someone up, you're in Arkham Asylum. For fuck's sake, just do Hugo Strange. Yeah. Or someone else. Have Victor Freeze in there or something. You know, I say that as someone who wants new villains, but look, I think Mr. Freeze deserves a second, a second attempt. <laughs> it's been 25 years. It's been 25 years. <laughs> and we've had, let's see, three Jokers in the past 14 years. I think we can use some other villains. I'm just saying that. This, to me, felt like a Warner Brothers mandate. It almost does, doesn't it? And this, to me, not needing the scene, not really liking it. I don't get anything out of it. I don't think it fits. I can't stand the look of this Joker. If it is distorted and we can't really see how it is, what are you just trying to one-up the Heath Ledger torn-up sides of the face? <laughs> that the only thought is I'm going to make it look like he's got monkey pox on his face, you know, in addition to everything else? I just, oh, man, it's not well done. The only thing that I can hope, and it's the way that I would like to see it, is if in The Batman 2, it starts with him putting Joker back in Arkham Asylum. That we never see him battle or fight the Joker. The Joker stays in Arkham or is returned to Arkham every time. That would make me happy because he exists, but he's put away, and Batman's off to fight other villains. I like the term fatal. I, I like the term fatal. I like that. <laughs> but I fear they won't do that. No. No, it, like uh, oh, especially with money Joker made. Or yeah. what is that? Diamonds are forever, where he actually captures Blofeld or. Kills him or what's he doing? No, he well he kills he kills him technically in Diamonds Are Forever, but he comes back and vaporizes yeah. the unnamed, only to be dumped into a chimney. In a silo. Yeah, yes. yeah. Okay, that's what I was thinking of. You know what? Now that you mentioned how much money the Joker made, do you think this was even included until that movie made a billion dollars? I have no idea, but the fact that he shot like a six-minute scene with him, yeah. Me- I think it was, I guess he, he might have, Warner Brothers might have said, you have to use the Joker. So he's like, all right, I'll do two scenes. But I don't, I, I don't know. I'm not excited to see him if he's in, if, you know, we'll talk about sequel ideas at the end of this. If they're going to do it, I like Adam's idea. He's strictly in Arkham Asylum. I'm just, I'm, I'm in the same way that I'm Catwoman doubt, I'm Joker now. Yeah, me too. Batman visits Selina again. She tells him that Gotham is never going to change and that it's going to kill him if he stays. He tells Selina to take care of herself as she drives off, as does he, as credits roll on The Batman. Three hours, folks. Scale of 1 to 10. What do we give The Batman? Adam, you go ahead and let loose, sir. This podcast is filled with thoughts. Those thoughts rain down like rain. So much rain. There's so much rain. This movie had a lot to live up to and had an absolute just metric fuck time of expectations. And I think it did a good job of meeting a lot of those and subverting a lot of those at the same time. Robert Pattinson's cast is a damn good way to go. It's not only a younger Batman, the youngest Batman we've had. I believe he's younger than Christian Bale when Bale got begins. But he's somebody that can still grow into the role and do different things with it. 
I enjoy Zoe Kravitz, though she's not my favorite. I think she's a very competent Catwoman. We've set our parts on most of the others. Uh, Colin Farrell really still in the show. Even Jeffrey Wright for two out of the three of us. <laughs> absolutely love what he did. I think Matt Reeves brought a different take for the most part. I think it's hard to escape what Nolan did, being that he kind of changed the skyscape, the nighttime view for Batman. But I think what Reeves did here in giving a detective story, as as simplistic as it is, as clunky as part of it is, I do think he made an effort into to go on that route, and I definitely appreciate that. I think this movie is shot unbelievably beautifully. Cinematography is beautiful. If this thing doesn't win an Oscar for hair and makeup, I would be absolutely astonished. Because if Suicide Squad won back in 2016, there's no way that Colin Farrell alone doesn't take on the Oscar for makeup for this film. Uh, the score does a good job where it needs to. We've talked about that the other times. It's just plodding along a little bit. That Batmobile scene directly in the center of this movie really recharges you when you need it. Unfortunately, as we discussed, the last 35, 45 minutes of this movie kind of falters. It takes a big right turn and lands into a dead end. This movie could have ended and should have ended way before it did. I don't know how much of that is knowing that you have no one going up against you in the movie theater for a long time, so you refuse to edit a movie. I think that was Wonder Woman 84's problem. They know that they didn't have to edit, so they just failed to do so. I think this movie went through part of that as well. But this is a movie that I really enjoyed seeing in theater. I like seeing this take of Batman. I like seeing this Gotham. I like the story that we were told. Riddler, yeah, he was definitely a little too Zodiac for me. I didn't need this take. But I still appreciated what Paul Dano brought to it. It's a movie I saw twice opening weekend. I've seen a few times since on HBO Max at home. And though it doesn't revel in that pulse-pounding scene because of the Dolby sound of that that I get at the movie theater, it still is a pretty damn enjoyable watch. It's up there pretty high on the ranking of Batman films. It, it is. I get a lot of enjoyment out of this, even when it just decides that it's going to take itself a little too seriously for a little too long. Two hours 20, two hours 30 this movie would be as solid as it gets. At three hours, it's knocking down itself a little bit here, but I still enjoy Batman quite a bit, and I'm going to give this a good 8 on 10. Wow. 8 on 10 from Bunch. Goudreau, another one who was pretty not too excited coming in. What are, what are your final thoughts on the Batman? So I have to copy and paste a lot of what Adam said, because I think him and I are pretty much in the same ballpark, although my ER, my ERA might be just a little bit lower. My favorite thing about this movie, above all else, is we have a Batman movie that is really, it trusts the audience with knowing the foundational aspects of this character. And because of that, they get to do some things that give it a mark of distinction. More importantly, we're, we're getting a Batman movie where they're questioning, is Batman actually a hero? With how he's portrayed in this movie and, and being a Batman for two years and things have gotten worse before they've gotten better. I think it's a great point to make. And I think as a, as a starting point for a, a future that they can explore in great detail, I would be very excited to see what they springboard from here. But looking at this as a movie, I do agree with Adam wholeheartedly that the last 25 to 30 minutes, once Riddler is caught and you get the, the No Man's Land sequence, it becomes a different movie. But goddamn, I love seeing Batman become a symbol uh, of hope 
for Gotham and for Bruce to realize that I cannot just operate in the shadows. I can do more to make things turn around. But all the teases at the end of seeing, you know, Riddler not be killed, which I was thankful for, because if they're going to keep this going, don't kill off all your major villains just because it's expected. Setting Penguin up to take over Falcone's territory, the right place. Him and Selina don't hook up. Him being Bruce Wayne, of course, but or Batman. This movie's a really, it's a really good meal that had a slightly overcooked dessert, in my opinion, to use a food analogy. All in all, I think this is a very, it's a very strong movie. If you shave off some parts and maybe didn't feel the need to be too indebted to Christopher Nolan in particular. I just think there's one too many points where, if not derivative, eerily similar. But I don't think Matt Reeves gets anything wrong or something that I immediately rebelled against, which is a rarity because usually there'll be at least one or two things that I'm not enamored with at all. And when I, when I say it's like Riddler's costume, it's a job well done for the most part. So I enjoyed this. I've seen it twice, but that length makes it difficult for me to, you know, you talked about the Suicide Squad, Garrett, on the last show, that you have to be in the right mood to watch it. I think this is a movie that you have to commit. Obviously, there's some scenes I could watch singled out. But as an overall experience, I think it works pretty damn well, but I don't think it's the best Batman movie, as some people have proclaimed. But that that's just me. So I'm going to go just a little bit lower than Adam and give a score I don't think I've ever given in this retro. Uh, I'm going to give a 7.5 on 10, because I think it's it's somewhere in between very good and great. It's it's in a, it's in a unique spot. Unique spot indeed. And when I think of unique, I definitely think of this film. And boys, we have reviewed 40 years worth of Batman films. And I think it is quite an accomplishment by Matt Reeves in that this feels different than any of those films we have reviewed in the past. That is an accomplishment, and I will completely applaud him for that. But for a movie I was really looking forward to, I was really looking forward to seeing Robert Pattinson in the cape and cowl. I was looking forward to seeing Andy Serkis as Alfred. I was looking forward to seeing what Matt Reeves, a director I have a lot of respect for, could do with this material. The only thing I was left wanting more of was Colin Farrell as Penguin. (laughs) This movie wears out its welcome. I cannot stress that enough. And I will stand by the fact that I did not feel the length of The Dark Knight. And by the time that movie was over, I was exhausted. You know, it's quite an experience to watch that movie. But I was not quite as exhausted in the same way while watching this one. I was more, let's get this fucking over with. And then when they drag it out by bringing the Joker and things in, I'm like, oh my God, really? We're going to go there, huh? After three hours, you're going to go there. Zoe Kravitz, I just, look, I came around on Anne Hathaway years later. I, I wrote a review up after I initially saw The Dark Knight Rises, and I put Anne Hathaway down pretty bad. In the years since, I have realized how good of a performance that really was. Maybe I will come around on Zoe Kravitz in the years to come, but after watching this, I, I don't like her in this movie. And I think the whole thing with her and Annika, I'm like, God damn, just cut that, please. But I did like a lot of the mobster stuff that they bring here. And the detecting things, those are good in small doses. But man, we're just going and going and going. And when we're trying to put little riddles together, I'm like, come on, guys, get on with this. Hell, even Schumacher didn't dwell on this this long when it came to the Riddler. All in all, though, I have to give it the respect it deserves just for being a standout movie, being a movie that does lie on its own. You don't have to watch any of the others to watch this. You know, you don't have to go through the Snyderverse to get to this. This is its own thing. 
And I do look forward to what Reeves can do next with this. But again, I was not craving more immediately after. And this was my first time watching it since that theatrical experience all those months ago. And when this was over, I watched it twice, believe it or not, just so I could take full notes on it. My notes were pretty extensive. The time was over, I'm like, yeah, I don't want any more. Uh, but who knows, maybe the years will be better to this. But this is getting a higher score than the average that I've given this retrospective. I am going with seven with this. I could go higher just for the audacity of it, but I cannot give a movie that is this long and wears out its welcome as badly as it does a higher score than a seven. It's not that great of a movie, but it is a pretty good one. So, yeah, that does it for The Batman. And that does it for DC, boys, at least for now. Matt, we are coming back to DC, though. Where do you think this movie can go? Where, where do you think The Batman can go from here? Where do you think they will go? So where do I think they will go and where I want it to go are two different answers. I think Joker is an inevitability, unfortunately. That will always entice people. And I don't think you're this blatantly teasing him without having some pretty concrete plans about what you're going to do. Now, as far as what I want to see, I'm going to break the mold because there's a lot, there's a lot of Batman villains that people are speculating who they want to see. Mr. Freeze seems to be the popular one. Uh, I think Matt Reeves has even said he wants to do it. I don't think you should go there next. I think there needs to be something in between before you get fully into cryogenics and really uber science. So I have two suggestions. Number one is Mad Hatter. If we're going to continue the detective route, doing a story where he has to stop a child kidnapper slash borderline pedophile, depending on who is writing him, it continues this Gotham City being a shithole while also getting a villain that could be as, look, I mean, look, you look at the Marvel movies and how they made some of those villains household names. I think something like Mad Hatter in Matt Reeves' hands, it could be done in a disturbing way, but one that is not too gratuitous. And I would love Ethan Hawke to play him having seen the Black Phone, but I'm sure there's some other great actors who could do it. Uh, number two, this is where I'm going to get, I'm going to get a lot of shit. If we're going the horror route and we're trying to build to more fantastical, Adam's probably going to laugh when I say this. I want to see Man Bat. <laughs> I know that sounds stupid, but doing something where it is Batman having to fight the thing that people perceive him to be, the monster unleashed, the thing that is all bloodlust. I'm not saying Man Bat would be the primary villain. But that's something I'd really want to see, because I think that'd be, you wouldn't have to make him like this giant bat creature. You could make him something more of like a pseudo vampire. Building up to doing things like Mr. Freeze or even Rachel Ghoul if they wanted to take another stab at that, no pun intended. But my big ones are, I don't want to see the Joker. I really don't want to see, a lot of people talking about Mr. Freeze, not yet, in my opinion. I want to see Harley. I want to see Poison Ivy. If we're going to continue the mob route, give me the ventriloquist, Scarface. I, I'd love to see what Matt Reeves do, does with that. So I think there's a lot of places they could go, but I th I'm terrified that Joker's going to be their easy way out. Yeah, I think if we're going to keep it kind of down and gritty, I think you do a fallout from No Man's Land, because then you can bring in David Kane from there. You can introduce this great character named Cassandra Kane, <laughs> Orphan, Black Bat. It'd be great. We've never seen her before in a live-action film, so that'd be awesome. Lady Shiva, you can go that route. You can get to the League of Assassins without necessarily having to go to Talia. Though I'd love to see Talia done better than we got, but 
I don't want to see the same villains. I love the ones that Matt had in mind. I'll mention it over and over till it happens. I really want to see Dr. Hugo Strange, you know, or even Amadeus Arkham, if you're going to maybe go back to it, but bring that modern. Just something that's that's twisted, but just with the deep roster that you can go through, pull just the randomness out of it and, and make it modern for today. Mad Hatter is probably the best idea. I'm worried we're going to get Bane. I, I really worry that coming up we're going to get Bane and Poison Ivy. That's my fear. I just have a feeling that's what they're going to do. They're going to have Dave Batista Bane, and they're going to have whoever they can be Queen Ivy and do it that way. But I hope they don't. I hope they're a little bit smarter that way. I hope Joker stays completely out of it. Or that's it. I think the smartest thing they could do, and I think it would be so such a great move if he's just, you get a three-minute scene every movie of him still rotting away in Arkham. I think that would be fucking awesome. Or just copy that exact opening scene from the very first Arkham game, where it's Batman with Joker tied up in the back of the Batmobile, and he returns him to Arkham. And that's how the movie begins. We don't know how or why, and it doesn't matter. Make it a pre-credit scene like you would get with a Bond movie, you know? That's really what I hope we would get. With Selena going to Bloodhaven, I think she called it out specifically, yep. I hope we don't get any of the Bloodhaven characters tied in, because to me, that's Dick's realm. That's all Nightwing, and leave it there. I don't need Dick and Gotham at this point. Sorry in my life. Um, <laughs> <laughs> put that since, right on the T. Yeah, since you opened up that Pandora's box, I said that I was not happy about doing recycled villains. But having seen what Matt Reeves did with the Penguin, I'd be willing to give him carte blanche to do Bane because I was disappointed by what Nolan did. I don't want, I wouldn't want to see it for the second movie, but sometime down the line. And obviously, you know, Adam and I both champion two face, bring in Harvey Dent, play the long game. Oscar Isaac's right there. Oh, oh. He's, He's pretty close to Robert Pattinson in age. I don't care that he's playing Moon Knight. We've seen people double dip before. The the possibilities are endless. But if it's not Joker, I will say bravo. You guys have mentioned Hugo Strange a number of times. Don't you think, like, non-comic book geeks like you guys would go go to that theater and think, oh, wow, like, they're pulling a Doctor Strange out? Boy, that's too much like Marvel. I think people are a lot smarter now with the age of the Internet. People are much more willing to do some homework. And with Hugo Strange being the main villain of one of the Arkham games until he gets usurped because the <laughs> plot needs it to happen. And I wouldn't even mind seeing another crack at Scarecrow as a main villain. With what Matt Reeves has done, even though I wasn't enamored with his Riddler, he's got a vision in mind. Just stay out of his way and don't tell him he has to use the Joker. <laughs> <laughs> the one thing that I'm surprised they didn't hear, but I do think we will get the next one i think we'll either be set up or we're going to fully get the court of owls all right well that does it for our first full retrospective as a site boys how do you guys feel this retrospective went you guys feel fulfilled after this it was a good conclusion so as someone who's been wanting to do this basically since you and i started Mm -hmm. this show all those years ago i couldn't be happier with how this turned out obviously not doing the nolan films as a trio is a bit of a disappointment but i think the work we did with Jack on those was outstanding. Mm-hmm. And we did not just Batman. We did as extensive, as in-depth the retro as we've ever done. Bond is in-depth just because of the length. But there's nowhere near as many spin-offs, reboots. The most we had was just that infamous movie we will never speak of again. <laughs> no, actually, I could copy and paste that for both of the unofficial Bond movies, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. 
But yeah, I couldn't be happier. I think we've set the bar very high. And this is everything I thought it was going to be when we finally put this on the slate. Yeah, I think this has been a fantastic way to kick things off. I think YouTube have done an absolutely superb job getting this through. And think about it. We started with the campiest of the camp. We went animated. We went Lego. We made Garrett watch things that he never would have watched if it wasn't for this. <laughs> we had first-time watches. We had repeat watches. I think something like this spans the gamut so much and covers, for one character, it really covers a gamut, and it runs runs the spectrum, and I think that's pretty fantastic. And I think all of these were really top-notch discussions. I don't think there was a single one where anybody phoned it in, <laughs> even if there's times where we felt like, you know, we wanted to. I think everybody really just brought an A-game, and that's that's impressive. Hell, my two highest scores were for Catwoman and Teen Titans go to the fucking movies. Go figure. <laughs> Damn, somebody lost on that pass line. <laughs> but if we went deep with this retrospective and the knockoff of Scorsese that we did with the Joker, Matt, how deep are we going to go with our next one? I think we go pretty deep well, with that one, too. Well, so we decided we like to plan this as far out as we can just so we were ahead of the curb, to quote the Dark Knight. So we, Garrett and I talked and we said, all right, how do we get Mike and Ari on the site? Because we, we always love talking with them and we've done... He's our director guy. We did Michael Mann, did Shyamalan, which was a great series. So we will be bringing him back, A, for Shyamalan's new movie next year, assuming that comes out. Hopefully it does, and we don't go back into lockdown or anything. But Mr. Uh, Mr. Dump Your Girl at 26 and Martin Scorsese were supposed to do <laughs> Killers of the Flower Moon, the next collaboration, was supposed to come out around this, you know, the fall, and it's gotten moved. So we decided to do the Leo and Scorsese quintology leading up to Killers of the Flower Moon. So we'll do Gangs of New York, Aviator, The Departed, which is how you should say it, Shutter Island, and The Wolf of Wall Street. And we'll do Killers of the Flower Moon sometime next year when it comes out. And who knows, Leo will probably be on his next girlfriend. So we'll, uh, he dumps girlfriends like NFL teams drop running backs when they turn 26. <laughs> it's it kind of insane, but Mike always brings his A game. He's actually going to be leading those discussions because yep. Garrett and I are just exhausted between doing Batman and me having two kids now. So it, it'll be a good change of pace. We've talked about a Scorsese imitation with Joker, so now we'll talk about not necessarily the main thing that inspired it, but it's it's the guy it's indebted to. So that'll be a very exciting retrospective to do. But rest assured, Adam will not be on the sidelines for long because we are coming back to close out the year with going to Pandora. Yeah. There's something in between that I'm not going to disclose yet. Um, we do have a, a duology mm -hmm. between Scorsese and Leo and Dances with Smurfs. But um, I'm going to save that for later. But we are going to be doing Avatar and Avatar 2 Tidal Wave Boogaloo. I think that was yeah, I, think I think that was a mandate when Adam got invited to the site. I think that was a mandate that we had to do those. <laughs> yeah, hey, they, they even put it back in theaters for us to make it easy. <laughs> I saw Jaws instead. Yeah, so a lot of good things coming up. And if people thought that our The Suicide Squad podcast was a beatdown, wait till you hear one of those Scorsese podcasts that we've already recorded. <laughs> it's, it probably rivals it with Ganeri and uh, Matt and myself kind of getting into it a bit. But that was a fun retrospective to record, and we have so much more coming up. But, man, guys, that's it. We are finished with DC for now, but rest assured we are coming back to DC next year 
We'll be covering one that's near and dear to me, Superman. We'll be getting into those films and re-reviewing Batman v Superman from Superman's point of view. That'll be next year. 20 minutes long, yeah. <laughs> that'll, be, that'll be next year around this time, but I do not envy Goudreau over there. He is the one who has been scheduling these, and things get moved around more than more than quarterbacks in the NFL. So it's uh, it's pretty crazy. So, guys, you guys all, all brought your A game. I appreciate you guys come joining me for this retrospective. And until we go to Scorsese, podcasts are a tool. They think I'm hiding behind the microphone, but I am the microphone. Thanks, boys. Each member of the team is chosen for his or her own completely unique set of abilities. This is Christopher Smith, known as Peacemaker. In his hands, anything is a deadly weapon. His father was a soldier who trained his son how to kill from the moment he was born. Are you having a laugh? What? You just said each member of the team is chosen for their unique abilities. He does exactly what I do, but better. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Three Men in a Retrospective podcast exclusively on Percolated Media. You think you can beat me? You're a fucking moron. Join us next week for an entirely new review. Unless we all want to die very unpleasant death, we're going to have to work together. And if you would be so kind, please take a moment and give us a positive review and rating on your podcast platform of choice. It truly helps others find and discover our podcasts. Do I look like the kind of clown that could start a movement? The Three Men in a Retrospective podcast is produced by Garrett, Matt, Adam, and Nathan. Who are you guys? Edited by Garrett. Fucking fabulous, if you ask me. Voiceovers by Adam. Okay, I'm waiting for the punchline. Retrospective podcast is for review and discussion, and all clips, music, and audio cues are used as such.
clear this place out now! Cackles? It's a, it's a weird choice to make him the way that it is. Do you agree with it or not agree with it? Yes. You do? Okay. <laughs> uh, no, I'm saying sometimes I'll go with it, and sometimes I just don't think it's the right direction for the character. Matt, what about you, sir? Or the right character to pick. Or Say that again. Or the right character to pick for this, necessarily. Hmm. Right is the right choice for me when it comes to putting him in a movie. I'm always ready for this guy to show up. Been waiting a long time to use that joke. <laughs> I'm surprised he didn't use it in Bond, for Christ's sake. We're... That was the wrong time for right. <laughs> well, you're going to get up and go, yeah! Like how Wonder Woman put her wristband in front of um, the attack from... Who was that in that dumb... Batman v Superman movie. Who was that they fought at the end? Doomsday. Yeah. Well, how she put her wrist in front of uh, Doomsday's. It's the way of, and I saw it as well this year. We won't talk about it for a little bit, but the most recent Jurassic World movie, where you basically had the scripts for two different movies, and you decided to make one. And in making one, you made that one just way more taxing and a lot longer than it needed to be. Yeah, and speak, you know. For a dinosaur pond, my patience went extinct with that movie very quickly. <laughs> we'll get to it next year, people. No, no, we're not doing it next year. We're just doing... Oh, the first trilogy. Just doing, just doing yep. the, the only trilogy that should exist. I'm getting really ahead of We're not going to do the Trevor stuff eventually? Oh, we will eventually, okay. you know, when I'm dead. <laughs> When Chavaro finally gets permission to do another movie again for a studio. <laughs> Their use of Penguin. It's fantastic. I hope HBO Max still allows that series to go forward, because God knows they're cutting things worse than a freaking... Uh, fucking... Ah, never mind. <laughs> so i got to ask you, because you're the comic book fan, Adam. We see Alexander Skarsgård as he leads her to... Uh, no, 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 that's Peter Sarsgaard. Oh. Peter Sarsgaard, no relation. No relation, okay. We see Peter Sarsgaard... This is Maggie Gyllenhaal's husband. Yeah, I, I, that, which is a weird connection. All right, we see Peter Sarsgaard... I mean, I've always liked John Turturro, except when he was standing and when he had to see Devastator's balls. That was a low point, but he's, he's rebounded pretty well. When he appeared on screen, Jen looked at me and goes, Oh, look, it's the guy from Transformers. <laughs> I'm like, she, could, she could even say Jesus. <laughs> don't fuck exactly. Jesus. She's like, where should don't I know him from? Jesus. <laughs> I mean, look, you know, given this movie, it wouldn't be that shocking for someone to go, Yeah, but he's a pervert. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. I get just enough of him. I think Matt said this earlier, but I'm glad I'm left wanting more of him. I think if you put a show out with them, I think you get pretty tired of them pretty quick. Check the Boba Fett TV show to get more of those thoughts, uh, <laughs> to get where I'm coming from. Well, at least, it, well, this penguin, uh, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to shut up. Okay. Yeah. He has a personality. I have so much to say. Yeah. I'll well, we'll save it for next year. But, um, they find Riddler who claims to be vengeance and then water flows in. <laughs> Go ahead, Adam. 
No, never mind. I think I have to skip. Never mind. Okay. To me, it's Venom. There's no reason that you make it green unless it's Venom. That's just my take. So I do think he'll have, in the way of an escalation like we did in The Dark Knight, I think we'll see some sort of an addiction to this Venom that'll allow him to get hopped up for the next See, I just thought of it as a adrenaline rush. And I think Matt Reeves has even come out and said that much, too. Like, no, it wasn't Venom. But the thing is, Venom, uh, green is such a distinct calling card. Sort of like doing, what's another colored liquid? Predator. Predator blood. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we did that series already. But I like how this is a Batman that... (laughs) 